I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of Some Like It's Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and I'm thrilled, as always, to be joined by my regular co-host, Scott Harvey. Before we get to talking about movies today, however, Scott and I have a big announcement to make, and that is that we have launched social media accounts for the podcast on both Facebook and Twitter. But more importantly, we've also launched a Patreon for this podcast to help pay for the costs of making the show like the subscription service of the platform we use to host all of our MP3 files that you download and listen to. If you don't know how Patreon works, it's a platform for creators of all types, videos, podcasts, animators, the list goes on. And supporters on this platform can pledge monthly amounts in return for different tiers of rewards. For our Patreon, there are seven different tiers, and the basic $1 level gets you our podcast episodes first before any other platform, including Apple Podcasts. And then rewards go up from there. We would so greatly appreciate it if you at least checked out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods, and we would of course love it even more if you decided to support us over there to help fund our endeavors, even if that is only at the $1 entry level. Enough of that, however. Um, Let's move on. Scott, we have a lot to talk about today between the post, Oscar nominations, and then some other stuff here and there, but first, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I just want to say that uh, to all the people, if you're thinking about becoming patrons out there, um, we're doing this podcast right now in the middle of the Super Bowl, so that just shows you how committed we are to the cause, to bring you quality content every other week. So uh, yeah, if you're thinking about becoming a Patreon, hopefully our our, our pure dedication to this podcast will be the... uh, the thing that puts you over the edge and, and makes you decide to give us give us a few cents. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the numbers of people who listen to our, I mean, at least I have, I've seen the numbers that, of people who listen to our podcast, and I know that if everyone who listened to the podcast donated $1 a month, um, we would have the would podcast subscription. Broke, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we wouldn't be making any money, but we would, we, would be, we would be covering the cost of the podcast hosting service, which would be, which would be awesome. Yeah. Just to start off with. But... Let's go ahead and start talking about movies, the real reason why we're here. First off, today, we're talking about The Post. This film chronicles the true story of the period of time in the early 1970s during Richard Nixon's second term when the Washington Post attempted to publish and report on the Pentagon Papers, classified documents regarding the truth about the U.S. government's involvement in the Vietnam War. The Post is directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Meryl Streep in the lead role as Katherine Graham, alongside Tom Hanks and a host of other recognizable names, but none of whom play as significant roles. The screenplay was written by Liz Hanna and Josh Singer, and the score was composed by the legendary John Williams, whose credits are far too long to count, but who's most famous for composing the scores of the Star Wars films, Indiana Jones movies, several of the Jurassic Park franchise, the first three Harry Potter films, as well as, interestingly enough, when I was looking up some of the Olympic Games, when they've been held in the U.S., he's, he's apparently composed some of the movies. surprise me at all. He's, yeah. he's the godfather of composers. Truly. Um, anyway, the post started off with a limited release in late December, before releasing more broadly on January 12th, a few weeks back. 
And in that time, it has managed to rake in a respectable $110 million against an operating budget of $50 million, which did surprise me a little bit, although the star power of Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and Steven Spielberg really pulled people to the box office. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so before we dive headfirst into some of the more specific talking points, I'd just love to hear what your general thoughts are about the movie. What did you think of it? Well, so here's what I'll say about this movie. I went into this movie, and I was expecting it to be your stereotypical Oscar Beatty movie. I mean, you know, despite the talent involved, and we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, Spielberg and Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks individually, um, despite the talent involved, it just had that feel of a sort of safe paint by the numbers. Uh, I mean, you know, well-made, but uh, safe Oscar Beatty drama. Um, and to some extent it is, but at the same time, uh, I enjoyed this movie. Um, I thought that especially, uh, the last 25 to 30 minutes, uh, of the movie, uh, really hammered home the, the relevance of the subject. Um, and the fact that, you know, this war on the press is something that honestly is, it's, going on it's more serious than ever now um and, and you know it, even though what happened in this movie happened 50 years ago um it feels like we haven't come very far um but you know it as a law student uh i love some of the uh the the first amendment um vi- vi- the stuff about the victories for the first amendment you know it was great i was all for it um and obviously, Steven Spielberg, he knows how to tell a story. Um, at this point in his career, it should come as no surprise um, that this movie runs like a well-oiled machine. Um, and the cast is good, if unexceptional, and we'll get to that um, a little bit in a little bit. But yeah, um, all in all, I have to say uh, that I, I did enjoy it. Um, although, I, you know, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to be a little more cynical about it, but once once I got in and, and was was watching the movie and once it was going along, um, you know, I couldn't help but but succumb to the obvious craft uh, on on display. And and you know, it's a great story too. Um, I, I, I am big into journalism movies, um, and while I don't think this is one of the best, um, it's a good one. Yeah, I, for the most part, agree with everything you're saying. To me, so I saw it a little while, I actually saw it on its opening weekend, at least of the wider release, and I didn't really go in with any sort of expectations. I mean, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks are, I mean, almost always high quality in movies, and Steven Spielberg is a legendary director. But I'm with you. I I, I just wasn't, I guess, the best way I can describe this is I just wasn't wowed by this movie. It was exactly how you described it. It was safe for me and well-made, well-oiled machine, solid performances, acting, a good buttoned up performance in terms of directing, but it, it just didn't have any of the, with one or two exceptions, it just really didn't have any of the high highs that I expect from these kind of films. That being yeah, said, it, it didn't have any of the low lows either. Uh, you were going to say something? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the problem with it not being maybe having the wow factor um, is just that the story itself just doesn't really lend itself very well to, I mean, we're talking about a newspaper deciding whether they want to publish government documents or not. I mean, there's only so much, so many fireworks that you can really get out of a story like that. I mean, even if you look at, you know, other great journalism movies like 
all the president's men or spotlight we're talking with those movies you're talking about you sort of have this mystery this central mystery and and they're more like investigative thrillers so there's always something that's sort of driving the story forward um so i think in in some respects um spielberg maybe was hampered a little bit just by the subject material uh, but but yeah i agree that it doesn't you know it doesn't have the wow factor as some of those other journalist movies even Sure, and, and I think it's totally fair to to bring up the fact that maybe the the we've talked about this before in past episodes, but the reality of telling a true story is that you are you are limited to what you can yes. do with with reality. And that being said, I thought there was enough content there, um, not necessarily in terms of the of the individual events. If we're talking about the publishing of the story, because I agree, like there's only it's only so juicy of a story when you're just making a decision about publishing these really controversial papers. But there are enough relationships in the background of that story, which I'm sure they had liberty with, to to fudge the details, to make uh, more appealing to a wider audience in a movie theater. And I just didn't get much out of that. I found this movie... The biggest thing... I'm going to sound really negative about this film, and ultimately I did really like it. I don't. I want to get that out of the way up front. But m- the biggest thing for me about this film is that I just didn't care about these characters until the second half of the film. Like, I was... T- I, Quite honestly, was pretty disinterested 45 to 50 minutes in. I didn't find any of the lead characters compelling. And if whether whether they had published the papers or not, whether they, uh, you know, about, until about halfway through the film, it, it, I just didn't really care that much. Of course, yeah, I, that changed in the second half of the film. It got a lot better. Exactly what you're saying with the last 30 minutes, it really picked up speed. I was gripped by the film at that point. But it was just really a slow burn to start out for me. Yeah, I think one area maybe where they could have done more in those opening stages of the movie were was, I mean, you know, obviously this movie is called The Post, and it's about the paper's decision whether or not to publish the papers, but I thought we could have had a little more backstory on Daniel Ellsberg, um, the guy who actually um, was the one who leaked these papers in the first place, who made the copies of the Pentagon Papers. Right, the guy um, from the opening scene in, in Vietnam. Yeah, that's the thing. They're, they're, he's really only a factor in the first couple scenes of the movie. Um, and, you know, you don't get a lot of who this guy is, what his motivations are. And, uh, you know, like I said, obviously this is a movie about a, a different group of people. But I feel like there was definitely more of a story to be told there. And maybe that could have, focusing on that a little bit more in the opening stages of the movie, could have helped it uh, from dragging its feet a little bit at the beginning. Agreed. And and now have now that I have talked somewhat negatively about the film's front half, I do want to say that the back half of the film, particularly the the time frame you described, the last 30, 35 minutes, however long that is, is an incredibly compelling series of scenes and events. And the way that I mean, we've mentioned this kind of in a negative way already, how there's only so much you can do with a with a story about publishing some documents. But the back half of that film, and I can think of a couple scenes in particular that are—I mean—they ratchet up the tension to eleven, and it does, yes. and they don't—they don't dial it down until the end of the film. Yes. So, I do want to say that as, as much as I dislike the front half of this film, the the back half is very good. I thought the performances from Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks pick up in the back half of the film, as well as the supporting cast, and just all around it, it feels like. Either whether it's Spielberg or Streep or Hanks or the supporting actors and actresses, 
everything just seemed to kind of click finally. And they, I don't know the order in which they filmed the scenes, but yeah. it seemed like they knew what they were doing at that point. And it, I didn't necessarily get that impression of some of the earlier scenes. Yeah, I think it really was. He's just getting into the meat of the story. And as good as Spielberg is, um, you know that when he gets a good story, like he can do more with it than just about any other director um, in Hollywood. So, you know, maybe he didn't have as incredible a story to work with this time as he has in something like Schindler's List, maybe. Um, sure. But once, once you know, he hit that home stretch of the movie, um, you know, he had me. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, I think we've talked about kind of the overall, our overall thoughts on the story and how it kind of progressed in broad strokes. And I'd like to drill down a little bit now and maybe start with the lead role, Meryl Streep as Catherine Graham. What did you think of her performance and also this this character? Well, I want the statement I want to make, and I'll say this kind of as a blanket statement about her performance and Tom Hanks's performance um, as Ben Bradley. Um, you know, obviously, these are two of the finest actors of our generation. I mean, they were both multiple Academy Award winners. I mean, everybody knows them at this point. Um, they're, you know, they're household names. Um, but, and, and I mean, and they, they do a, a, a perfectly solid job in this movie with the roles that they are asked to play. Um, but my question is just... Uh, you know, and maybe this is something you, you, you have a better answer to than I do, but when is the last time that you can remember Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks taking a risk with a role? Because, you know, the, I, I mean, I, I thinking back, I, it, it's been a long time. Um, and to me, that's the sign of, like, some of our greatest actors is that even as they get older, even as they get more famous – um, they're still taking risks. I mean, someone like Daniel Day-Lewis, he takes a risk in every single movie, um, and the Eagles just scored a touchdown. Um, but uh, but I feel like Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, there's just sort of a degree of complacency, as if they're almost like, you know, we know how great we are. Uh, we know that when we want to, you know, turn on the afterburners, there's no one who can... Uh, stay with us, but we're in kind of the twilight of our careers now, so we're just gonna kind of you know play it safe. Um, and that was kind of you know that was kind of the impression that I that I got with some of these performances, with both of these performances, honestly, in this movie. Um, you know, very solid. Very little you can say about the craft, other than that it's you know it's very polished. Um, but. I don't know. I just expected more like, you know, Meryl Streep. I feel like Catherine Graham is a very, you know, sort of inspirational figure, has a great story, but she just kind of blended together with a lot of other Meryl Streep characters to me. Uh, You know, it's that feeling of these two actors are such big stars now that when they come on screen, especially in a role like this, you feel like you're watching Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and not Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley. And I think that's, you know, something that actors should do is really disappear into their characters. Um, so, you know, maybe it's partially them and maybe it's just partially they're such big stars now. Um, but I was a little underwhelmed by, by both performances, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's that's such a well-worded way to describe, I think, a lot of things that I felt in this film. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not someone who's actually seen a lot of Meryl Streep films, as good as she is. So yeah. I can't really speak to the last time maybe she was in a edgy or kind of risky performance. And I'm just thinking about Tom Hanks 
films. I, I mean, as as a joke, I don't know if um, Inferno or like Da Vinci Code count as like risky performances because those are pretty bad movies. But um, I I know he did Inferno a couple years ago, I think, which was another one of those Robert Langdon. Yeah, it's just kind of that whole, it's Tom Hanks playing Tom Hanks thing, you know? Sure, 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 yeah. I remember Captain Phillips, I was really, I mean, Sully is definitely a Tom Hanks film. Captain Phillips felt a little bit different, but there is still that kind of gravitas of the position. Yeah, I I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, Maybe, you know, I mean, he's had some, like, iconic characters. I mean, you think about Forrest Gump and, uh, you know, I can't think of, I forget his character's name, but in Castaway. you know, these are iconic characters, um, and and those were you know those were not your your safe boilerplate parts uh, to play. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why they were so memorable. Yeah, Chuck, uh, Chuck Nolan in Castaways is, is his character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm th- I'm, I'm trying to think because maybe Cloud Atlas. Maybe that's the most recent rescue. I feel like that. I mean, it's less his role and more the that's movie. That's true. He did have to play a lot of characters in Cloud Atlas, but that movie was kind of a mess. Yeah, I think that movie divided opinion. But maybe focusing back in on the, on the post here, I, yeah. I do agree for the most part with what you're saying. I think that these roles are just, they're almost written for Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when you're talking about a film in the context of Oscar-winning performances, which I think you have to, considering are both, are these, both of these characters are nominated for Oscars, or did Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks didn't get a nomination, actually, did he? Uh, did he not? I, no, I don't think he... He did, but you might want to double check on that. He did not get a nomination at the Oscars. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's right. The Post was only nominated for two awards. It was Best Picture and then Meryl Streep for Best Actress. Right. So, yeah, he got nominated at the Globes, but he did not get nominated at uh, the Oscars. So, but nevertheless, I mean, with Spiel- I mean, Spielberg didn't get director. We're going to talk about all this later when we talk about Oscar nominations. But it's hard not to look at this film and, and just be like, okay, like, if we're talking Oscar performances and when we talk about them later, like you want to see something that an actor or an actress hasn't done before, right? That that's new that you're like, wow, yes. I didn't I didn't know this person was capable of this. Or not less that and more just I didn't know this person had this particular role in their arsenal or repertoire, however you want to describe it. And I yeah, definitely and, didn't get that from either of these roles. Go ahead. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when you're you're saying that and that's that's absolutely correct, and I'm I'm thinking about Francis McDormand in my head, uh, because I mean, you talk about polar opposite performances. You think about her first Oscar-winning performance in Fargo, um, where she's this sort of wholesome, you know, down-to-earth, super polite, you know, uh, Midwestern police officer to what she did this year in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, where she's just like a force of nature, basically. I mean, complete antithesis of that character. And, I mean, you know, Frances McDormand is an older actress. She's around Meryl Streep's age, I would say. Um, so that's an example of someone who is still reinventing themselves even at this point in their career um, and to great effect because I think she has a very good shot to take on the Oscar. Definitely a better shot than Meryl Streep has. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit about Frances McDormand. It's true about Fargo. Maybe we'll get into this later, but I, I don't know if that role is entirely new for her just based on seeing her in more recent stuff like Olive Kitteridge and other okay. other pieces of work. But that's something for another a discussion for another time. Um, I, I think her performance was fantastic. But again, back to the post, um, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks. It's not even that I was underwhelmed. I just, I didn't really feel much about their performance. It was, they were, they were good. It was an enjoyable movie to watch on screen. A lot of, I mean, my issues were more with other parts of the film than with their, their performances. I think that's, that's the bottom line for me. They're just unremarkable. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it was a little disappointing, but at the same time, you know, it's hard to complain getting to watch these actors do what they do because they are so good. For sure, and I do want to say that, that again, I kind of derided the first half of the film, and I think Meryl Streep actually does play a role in me being underwhelmed in the first half. I don't think she put much life into her character, and, and if that was the intention, then she did a good job. I'm, I'm not saying it's not possible that wasn't the intention, because she over the course of the film, she really evolves from this weak, passive, almost kind of bystander to the rest of the board yeah. uh, of, the po- of the Washington Post. And by the end of the film, when I'm totally in this film's, I guess, grips, she is assertive, she is dominant, she has evolved like through this kind of fiery transformational period in both the paper and her own life, coming to terms with her situation involving her father's and her husband's passing over the years and coming into this role. And I think that she does end up being masterful in those final scenes. Again, maybe it was Spielberg's intention to have that arc be in that way. But if that was the case, that doesn't necessarily excuse the fact that I was disinterested at the beginning of the film, in my opinion. I agree with what you're saying about the transformation of this character. Um, Because you have that scene, you know, towards the beginning of the movie where she's in, like, her first board meeting and she's trying to say something. Or she she makes a suggestion and it just kind of, you know, nobody really listens. And then seconds later, one of the male, one of the men in the room makes the same. um, There are only men in the room besides her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She's the only woman. And and one of the other men makes the same same suggestion and everyone's like, oh, yeah, great idea or whatever. So you go from that to... Like you said, these these moments at the end where, uh, you know, she's she's really takes control of this paper um, and, and makes it her own. And even I think the ultimate moment is probably what, what I thought was kind of one of the more ham-fisted moments in the movie, actually, um, which is after the Supreme Court arguments, when they're walking um, down the stairs of the Supreme Court and there are just like all these women and there's like this slow motion you know, shot of Meryl Streep as she's walking down the stairs and just all you see is just like this wall of women behind her um, watching her. I thought it was a little much, um, uh, you know, maybe a, a little cor- corny um, in, in that moment. But, it, you know, like you said, it does really speak to the transformation that this um, character undergoes to where she in the beginning is just someone who is trying to keep her husband's uh, you know, project afloat to, by the end of the movie, she's she's made this newspaper her own and she's taking it to a whole nother level um, by, you know, make, taking a stand for free press and the First Amendment. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's such a, it's such a time, I mean, we mentioned this kind of already briefly, but it's such a timely film in several ways. We've talked about freedom of the press, or you talked about freedom of the press already, but also in terms of women's roles in society. And Meryl Streep artfully kind of shows the, a, albeit sort of, you know, crammed in arc of what often, what, what maybe represents a societal shift in women's roles into the span of a two-hour movie, but nevertheless is a role that is really important to see on the screen and ties in nicely with with things like the Me Too movement that we've talked about in past episodes. Sure. And I appreciated that, and it's hard to always tell whether movies are a product of social movements or it just so happens that the social movement uh, 
aligns with the movie. I don't, I don't know how long this film was in production. Yeah. That being said, although Me Too kind of came to a head in the past few months, it has been that 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 sort of women's roles in society is a topic that has been boiling under the surface for a long for several years now. So it's it's good to see kind of the alignment of these things and and give people you know award shows th- something something to talk about in that sense and something to really reflect the nature of society when award shows like the Oscars have been called disconnected from society and you know the whole Oscar to Oscar so white uh, from several years back things like that. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that with the nominees that we that we talk about later, but it, it's a it's a good thing to see these sort of movies, which whether or not they win any awards, I, I mean, I, I I would wager, and I think that you'd agree with me that this this film probably won't take home any awards, but no, I don't think so. Right, but it's still good. It's in the conversation. It's in the public consciousness. It's made over a hundred million in theaters, uh, which this kind of film, barring the star power, probably wouldn't make. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the kind of film that would blow out the box office. And I mean, just in general, the best actress field is just so much stronger than the best actor, I mean, category. I mean, the best actor, and we'll talk about this a little later, is kind of a foregone conclusion who's going to win, I think. But best actress, I mean, all five of these are brilliant. I mean, I haven't seen The Shape of Water, but I mean, I have no reason to doubt that Sally Hawkins is fantastic in it, but... I mean, all five of these are just absolutely powerhouse performances, um, and I could see the award going to any of them, honestly. Um, so, yeah, that that speaks to what what a year for women it was in terms of acting. Absolutely. So, I would like to start maybe pushing forward again. I don't know if you want to say anything else about Tom Hanks' performance. We have kind of focused on Meryl Streep, although I know you kind of said you lumped in them together in your yeah. initial thoughts. Do you have anything else you want to add about Tom Hanks, or should we just move on? Uh, the one thing I will add, uh, not as compelling as uh, Jason Robards playing uh, Ben Bradley in All the President's Men. Uh, actually, J- Jason Robards won an Oscar, I believe, for that performance. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't know. I, I expected a little bit more. Although I did, I thought the way that Tom Hanks, I don't know what the accent or the affectation he did in his voice or whatever, kind of added a little bit of flavor to the character. Um kind of made him seem like, you know, this sort of old school newsman a little bit. Um, but I don't know that they, he really carried that through all the way through the movie. But, you know, it's Tom Hanks. It, it feels like we're, we're uh, being nitpicky a little bit. Yeah, Robards did win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for All the President's Men. So mm-hmm. you're you're right. I actually had forgotten that Ben Bradley was... I mean, I knew Jason Robards played in that film, but I had forgotten that Ben Bradley was the character he played. Um, that's yeah. A, I should have known that. <laughs> uh, anyway, so... Yeah, I don't really think I have much more to add about Tom Hanks. He's a solid actor. If it was another person in this role who gave the same performance, we'd probably be talking about him more. But because of what we expect from Tom Hanks at this point, it's just a little bit less of a notable performance. Uh, Absolutely. At the end of the day, right? So there, you know, we've talked a lot about Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. You mentioned, um, I believe it's Bob Odenkirk is the actor. Yes. Name? Yeah, uh, but there are a host of other names in this film. Quite a few who are recognizable, Bob, like Bob Odenkirk, as we talked, as we talked about already, who plays Ben Bagdikian, who's the person who's in communication with the the leaker, who's Daniel Ellsberg, who's played by Matthew Rice. I think he's from uh, The American, the FX show. That's right, he is. I yeah. knew I recognized the name. Yeah, that's and then, definitely where he's from. And then there's also Tracy Letts, Bradley Whitford from West Wing fame. Bruce Tracy Greenwood. Letts played the dad in Lady Bird too. Oh, that's right. That's right. Tracy Letts did. 
And then, yeah, and then Bradley Whitford from West Wing fame, Bruce Greenwood, who's been in, I feel like, so many things over the years. Most recently, in my mind, The People versus O.J. Simpson, because I'm watching that right now. But, yes. yeah, he's there's just so many, so many actors and actresses that are sprinkled throughout this film. I just thought they were worth noting. I don't know if I have anything substantive to say. I just thought it was a powerhouse cast. Uh, that... I, I want to talk about one person you mentioned, Bob Odenkirk. Sure, um, yep. Because that was the one performance to me that actually kind of stuck out in the cast um, as he was this kind of, you know, kind of what I was talking about, Tom Hanks' character. He was this kind of old school, yeah, I mean, I, I will get my boots dirty um, and do whatever it takes basically to get the scoop. And, you know, you see him out and he's making phone calls and he's wearing a trench coat, um, you know. And I, so I thought that he... Had a, his he brought a really sort of Woodward and Bernstein-y investigative feel to his character. Um, so yeah, I thought his performance definitely stuck out to me um, among the cast. Uh, but yeah, you know all those names you mentioned are great: Bradley Whitford, uh, Tracy Letts, um, Bruce Greenwood, Jesse Plemons also um, shows up as a lawyer towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, Allison Brie plays uh, plays Catherine Graham's daughter, mm-hmm. um, which actually. Since I mentioned it, there's that was one, another moment that I had a bit of an issue with was the scene between the two of them towards the end of the movie, um, where they discover or they don't discover it, but they're they're reading this note or this letter that um, Catherine Graham's husband left, I guess, before he died. He committed um, suicide, right? So I think it was a suicide note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it 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 was the great movie cliche of. We're gonna have this. We're gonna have this big dramatic reading out loud of this thing that no one would actually read out loud in real life. Um, so that kind of, you know, that was a little again, like the kind of like the moment on outside the Supreme Court. It was a little corny because Meryl Streep's like, "Oh, uh, I I can't see without my glasses or whatever. Will you read it to me, daughter?" And I was like, "Why don't you just say?" can you read it to me so we can really amp up the drama in this scene? Uh, but, but yeah, uh, the cast overall, great. Yeah, I think, I think on that note, I want to talk about my, how I can sum up all of, my, all of my problems with this film into kind of one thought. And it's that when we compare this movie to one like Spotlight and All the President's Men, which we've talked about already, in terms of the context for it, Yes. one thing that I thought about this, and I understand the stories are different, which we talked about already, so that kind of makes the nature of the film different. But I felt so passive watching this movie. In a movie like Spotlight, which is more recent in my mind, because it's only from a few years ago, I felt fully engaged, fully active in the, I guess, the narrative unraveling of the movie. And in this one, perfectly exemplified by the scene you're talking about when they read the note out loud... I just felt like I was being told rather than shown exactly. what the what exactly. the plot of this movie was and why I should care and, and, you know, fill in the blank about that. And that wasn't... And, and I think that is my ultimate negative for this film, even amongst the strong back half, the strong performances from a few of the actors and actresses in this film. I think that's how I can best sum up my... the shortcomings of this film in my from my perspective. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I actually, I think that's a great point. I think there were, you know, a few moments where you expected it, you know, you expected that there was going to be a big emotional moment and you felt like the movie was trying to convince you that it was a big emotional moment, but 
it just didn't quite hit me in the feels. Although there is one, uh, there was one scene which I thought was an exception, um, which was uh, after the Supreme Court decision is handed down, um, and they're in the newsroom and everybody's celebrating. And yeah, I think once again, I think this is just the inner law student in me coming out. But um, one of the women in the office says she's on the phone and she says here i'm gonna read uh, justice black's opinion or this is justice black's opinion they're giving it to me or whatever and she reads uh, a yeah really stirring part of justice black of justice black's opinion and i to be honest with you i got chills during that scene because i thought it was you know it was very stirring um and and so that was that was the one um the one moment where i felt like well, well, not the only moment, but the, the one moment that stood out to me where I felt like, um, you know, they kind of just stood back and let the material uh, create the emotion for itself, and it worked. Right, and I think the last big thing I want to hit in the discussion of this film is, and it kind of ties into exactly what you're talking about, how the the movie itself creates the emotions, and, and that's John Williams' score. For me, it was a very moving score for this film. I, and maybe I noticed it more because I was less interested in the first half of the movie, but I thought the musical notes uh, that this film implements at the times that it implements them are spot on. Again, it might have been because I was a little bit disinterested in the actual film for the front half that I noticed it and then paid attention the rest of the time, but I did want to bring that up because I thought it was a really strong point in this movie. Yeah, no, I mean, John Williams is always great. He has the, you know the, that big orchestral feel um, to all of his music and yeah, you know, that's why I say I'm not really surprised that, um, that he, you know, was involved, has been involved with the Olympics, um, before. So I thought it really, yeah, it definitely went a long way towards, um, you know, tugging on the heartstrings a little bit, giving it a more stirring, uh, swell to it, um, without being really overbearing, you know, like someone like Hans Zimmer can get sometimes. For sure. And I, and I just thought, I wanted to bring it up because it it lifted the film when maybe other parts of it, for me, when it, other parts of it weren't living up to the standards that I thought would come out of it. And then it also complemented it when the film was hitting those high notes towards the end of the movie. I can think of a couple a couple scenes in particular, particularly the, the newspaper one where it's the printing press is printing the paper that they're publishing, which is yeah. a, a great scene. But It yeah, was a great scene, although... Honestly, I feel like every single newspaper scene has a scene that's exactly like that to some degree. Uh, and I'm not saying it wasn't necessary in this movie. I thought it was, you know, it was very well done in the scene. But I feel like after watching all these newspaper movies, I'm like, I get it. I know how a newspaper is printed now. But yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right. So kind of the last the last point kind of again, zooming zooming out to the to the macro level. Where do you think this fits in in terms of Spielberg classics? You know, and similarly, how does this compare to other newspaper dramas that we've mentioned but haven't necessarily point blank compared it to? Uh, well, the short answer is that it does not compare. Um, also, Eagles just won the Super Bowl. Woo! Um, but uh, you know, those are those are two of, in my opinion, the greatest movies ever made. Um, Spotlight and All the President's Men. Um, and you know, I think you owe. Like I said, I, a lot of that is because of the the subject material um, that that both of those movies are working with um, is just so 
compelling and so suspenseful on its own, even without, you know, the, the direction and all the performances and that. Um, so, you know, I don't, and even, you know, in the, in the canon of Steven Spielberg films, I don't think this is one that's gonna, that's gonna really stand out or, you know, I, I mean, I, I hope that it'll stand the test of time just because of the relevance of it. Um, especially the final moments of the movie with, you know, where, where Richard Nixon is on the phone in, in the Oval Office basically saying, don't ever bring the Washington Post reporters, that, don't ever allow them in here again. I mean, it was, it, it was eerie it's how chilling. similar yep. that was to, you know, what we're seeing today in Washington. Um, so, you know, for, for scenes like that, I hope that this movie does hold up. Um, but it's it doesn't come close to having the emotional appeal of something like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List or, you know, another sort of um, fact-based story that Spielberg has worked on. Agreed, agreed. I don't think I have too much to add on that, on that front. I will say that those last moments that you're referring to were really powerful for me. And before we do our wrap-up where we talk about favorite scene or moment and rate the film in terms of a score, I would like to, to joke that I, I actually have seen in places on the internet that theories about whether or not the last scene in the film when you have the police officer in at the Watergate building walking in on the robbery, on the theft, that that, that theory is that that is, a, that is a setup for a sequel to this film. <laughs> well, are, seriously? I don't know if they're serious or not, but... Uh, well, I feel like All the President's Men was the sequel then, because that's exactly where All the President's Men starts out with the... Watergate burglary in the first scene. So, I think that's I fair. I, yeah, I don't want there to be a sequel. I think watch this movie, then go watch All the President's Men. That's the sequel right there. It's a remake, so they're gonna remake All the President's Men. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh-oh. Oh gosh, I hope not. <laughs> no. There's some movies that just don't need to be messed with. Yeah, sure. Um, I, and I, that's one of them. I again, I don't know how serious those places are being, but I, I got a good laugh out of. I don't know if Steven Spielberg has ever set up a sequel for anything before, so. Uh, Indiana Jones. Indiana oh, fair. Jones. That's fair. Okay, I, I immediately corrected. Uh, although, although at the, let's not forget at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you literally had Indiana Jones and his father riding off into the sunset, and yet they still decided, oh, maybe we should make another one of these movies. But yeah, that's I mean that's debate. that's more the that's more the production company wanting to make money. I think yeah. than probably Spielberg. And let's, why, why don't we just involve aliens too as well? What could go wrong with that? Again, a discussion for another time, as you say. <laughs> All right, so in wrap-up phase here, what was your favorite scene or, or moment from this film? I already mentioned it, and I, I was not going to mention it earlier because I was going to save it for this portion, um, but I'll just reiterate that. Uh, the, the moment where the lady in the newspaper office is reading out Justice Black's opinion from the New York Times versus United States case, um, that was that was the moment that did it for me. Um, by far the standout moment of the movie for me. I think that's a it's, a it's a good one to pick for me. I had a hard time narrowing it down. I think I think the moment that I felt the most uh, tension in the film is going to be the one for me, and that is when she really is being Meryl Streep's character, that is Catherine Graham, is being pressured on all sides. You know, she has her people telling her to not to not publish to publish, and you can. She bears out in her face so well. The the music yeah. is perfect in the scene, and even though you know the answer, and you know what's going to happen when it does happen, for me it was a it was a great building of tension and then release of that tension. And for me, the climax of the film was the best moment. 
I, I, you know, I find it very hard to argue with that. Um, that's probably the best scene as far as Meryl Streep's acting in this movie, just because of what you said. Yeah, the she wears it on her face, like you said. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a great moment as well. Cool. All right. Out of out of our ten point scale and with the with the decimal points, what would you give this film? I'm gonna go with a nice solid seven point five. Um, you know, nothing really to write home about. I would say with the post, um, but a very polished, very well made drama with some standout scenes in it for sure. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair score. Hard to hard to push back against that too much. I'm going to be in the same general ballpark, although slightly more positive. I think John Williams' score really struck me. I thought the back half of the, half of the film was very, very strong in spite of the shortcomings of the first half and some of the other things we talked about. I'm clocking in at a 7.8 out of 10 for this one. All right. Cool. All right. So I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion of the post. It was pretty robust. I thought it was a really great one. And it sounds like we both agree that it's worth seeing, but maybe not a must-see over this kind of Oscar-nominated films period of time. Agree. All right, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with part two and all things Oscar nominations. Back in a second. Welcome back for part two of today's Some Like It, Scott. We're now going to be taking a deep dive into the Oscar nominations, which came out roughly two weeks ago now. The 90th edition of the Academy Awards will be taking place in exactly a month from our time of recording on March 4th, and it will be hosted for the second consecutive year by Jimmy Kimmel after he unwittingly oversaw possibly the worst snafu in Oscar history last year. The year's top three nominated films were Shape of Water with 13 nominations, one off the record jointly held by La La Land, Titanic, and All About Eve, followed by Dunkirk with eight nominations, then three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri with seven. Now, having said that, our discussion will be focusing largely on the big six categories and breaking those down and less on these films that have a lot of nominations, although, of course, they'll come up since they were nominated in a lot of these categories. Uh, At the end, we'll circle back and talk about things more holistically. So why don't we start at the end of the awards list. So we'll start from maybe what would be called the least important of the big six, uh, the best supporting roles, and then we'll work our way up to best actor, actress, best director, best picture. So in the best supporting actress category, uh, so the way the Oscars works is there's five nominees in every category pretty much except for best picture. Um, and then, well, at least for the big categories, there's, there's variation in the other ones as well. But for best supporting actress, uh, the nominees are Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, Allison Janney for I, Tanya, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. Now, before we discuss this, I, I've dug up some, some juicy facts about these different right. nominees. And so, so Mary J. Blige is actually the first individual to be nominated for acting and songwriting in the same year. So she was nominated for her performance in, Mary, in Mudbound, as well as her performance singing in Mudbound mm-hmm. as, as well. So... Um, that's cool. And also of note for Mudbound, it's actually Netflix's first breakthrough in the major categories at the Oscars. So they've had some documentaries nominated before, but this is their first time in one of the big six categories. Um, I think a, a cooler stat that I dug up that I'm fairly proud of uh, is that along with becoming tied with Viola Davis for most nominated African-American woman at the Oscars, Octavia Spencer can claim this strange but I think really cool distinction that she's only been nominated for films that have taken place in the 1960s. The Help... <laughs> 
hidden figures in the shape of water all take place in the 1960s and she's been nominated in all three of those films so yes, with you those should, you should be impressed for digging up that stat <laughs> i am impressed you, you should be you should be very uh, honored by digging up that stat sure so so with those out of the way you know what's your what's your take on this i mean i have my opinion i suspect your opinion is is the same but that just like we i mean you mentioned already the best actress category when we get to it, it's going to be really loaded i think this is really loaded too uh yes and no um i feel like there are really two big heavy hitters in this category um those being um those being allison janney and i tanya of course and uh laurie metcalf and ladybird and i really think i mean i don't really see anything stopping allison janney from winning this um she won at the golden globes and she won at the SAG Awards, which is usually the biggest predictor of who actually ends up winning at the Oscars. Which um, is the Screen Actors Guild Awards, just for... Yes, those, Screen so. Actors Guild, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I was actually a little bit surprised to see Leslie Manville get nominated for um, Phantom Threat, because I'm not sure she's been nominated at anything else. And it actually, I think a lot of people were thinking that Vicky Crepes, who stars alongside Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie, was the more likely um, person from phantom threat to get a nomination so i was definitely a little bit surprised to see her name in there also um you know you mentioned octavia spencer but she wasn't someone who was necessarily considered to be a shoe-in um for this category um so i don't know i think those two maybe are it fall in the it's an honor to be nominated um part of the the category um so yeah i think it really is a, a, a two-horse race between alice and janney and laurie metcalf and i don't really see anything stopping alice and janney um but they're both uh great performances definitely both deserve to be nominated for sure i think i think i, I have to first get out of the way and say that I, if alice and janney does not win this i i will go on a rant on our post oscars <laughs> episode because i will be infuriated that yeah. being said i think laurie metcalf is outstanding and, and a great competitor for an for a best supporting actress oscar in another year um unfortunately she got put up against allison janney who's mesmeric in her performance in i tanya and that being said i haven't so i haven't seen shape of water i haven't seen phantom thread yet i mean we will see them before the oscars because we're talking about them before the oscars but i i would be interested to see I've, i've actually heard more positive things about octavia spencer's role so i don't maybe maybe it's just different sources there and and mary j blige has been very highly praised it's just the the stigma around being in a netflix show and it, it pretty much hamstrings you in the oscar in the award season i think oh yeah i, I don't yeah. think that octavia spencer's performances was that anyone has been criticizing it i just don't think that um, everyone had her as a 100% guarantee to get this nomination. Sure, that, and that's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, as for Leslie Manville, I was doing a quick look her up because I hadn't heard of her before myself, and she has been nominated for, for some British awards for film for her role in a movie called Another Year. So nothing nothing in okay, the Academy yeah. or the Golden Globes, but she has been nominated for a BAFTA award and a couple others for that role. Um, that That's just a quick note there. But... Yeah, I mean, Al- I mean, nothing more to talk about really in this. Allison Janney, I think, is is hands down. She's got she's got to be the one who wins this one. Yeah, no doubt about it in my mind. Cool. All right, so let's move on to best supporting actor. So, I, again, I think you're gonna have some pretty strong opinions here. So, best supporting actor nominees: Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, Woody Harrelson for Three Billboards Outside Ebony, Missouri, Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World, and Sam Rockwell also for Three Billboards Outside Ebony, Missouri. So again, got a few more facts here to, to dump on us. Christopher Plummer, at the age of 88, did not realize he was that old, um, is the oldest actor to be nominated for a competitive award 
at the Oscars, uh, which goes quite well as he now holds both the oldest actor to be nominated and the oldest actor to win because he's yeah, the current holder for that. For yeah, he's the oldest to win for his role in the in Beginners in 2012. He won Best Supporting mm-hmm. Actor, and then this is also the first time since 1992 that there are two supporting actor nominees from the same film nominated in the, in the same year. Obviously, if it's the same film. Um, 1992 was Ben Kingsley and Harvey Keitel and Bugsy were both nominated. Uh, that was the last time that's happened. Interesting. All right, what do you what do you think of Best Supporting Actor? I know that you're really big on Willem Dafoe's performance in the Florida Project. Yeah, and honestly, before awards season started, I thought that Willem Dafoe was going to be the favorite for this one, um, just because you know he's one of those actors who's been doing great work for years um and hasn't received a lot of recognition for it um so i thought maybe he would be the one especially since the florida project is not a movie which has gotten any other nominations much to my chagrin um but you know once awards season started it's been sam rockwell all the way and you know to be fair much like Willem defoe sam rockwell is an actor who's been doing great work for a long time and hasn't received a lot of recognition for it um so and i I mean i of course i think his performance is fantastic in three billboards outside ebbing missouri um so would not be uh would not be sorry to see him win at all um but yeah this is outside of best actress this is probably the the most has the most heavy hitters of uh, the rest of the acting uh categories in my opinion i mean richard jenkins woody harrelson uh, neither one has won an Oscar, but both are frequently nominated, um, you know, heavy hitters. Um, and then, who's the one I'm forgetting? Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, yeah. yeah. I mean, you said it right there. He's, he's. I mean, been do, he's been Oscar nominated since he was in The Sound of Music back in 1965. So, um, you know, the, everything that there is to be said about Christopher Plummer has been said. Um, so, this is, this is a great category in general. Um, some great actors in there. Uh, but I think Sam Rockwell, um, just because the way that his character, the, the transformation that his character undergoes um, in Three Billboards is not a very easy one to portray. And that's something we'll talk about in a future episode when we talk about this movie more in depth. Yep. Um, and I think the way he goes from sort of zero to, I won't say hero, but something approaching a hero by mm. the end of this movie Um mm. We will discuss that on a future yeah, episode. Yeah, Sp- speaks to, uh, it, you know, it's something that Oscar voters probably will connect with, and that's why uh, he's been taking home most of the awards so far. Um, yeah. But yeah, great category, um, and I think Sam Rockwell's got it. Though. Yeah, see, this is one where we diverge pretty heavily, I think. Um, I, I would actually, well, I'm not going to say I'd be surprised if Sam Rockwell won, but I think that it is the wrong decision if Sam Rockwell wins this. Not because of his performance, because I think his performance is good, but his character is one that I think is a really tough one to give this award to. I was, I'm surprised that the Golden Globes gave him gave his character this. I know they're giving it to him, but his character this award. And I yeah. wonder if the Oscars will follow suit. For me, if we're doing if if you're if you want to give the award to three billboards, I think Woody Harrelson is fantastic in the movie because of Sam Rockwell's performance. It's almost overshadowed Woody Harrelson's, and obviously Woody well not obviously but Woody Harrelson's in the film for a much briefer period of time. Yes, but I mean, for me, I haven't seen the Florida Project. It's on my to watch list, but I, I hope that Willem Dafoe wins personally. I do too, just because this was my favorite movie of 2017. Um, so you know, I would love to see it 
it went something. Um, although, you know, it, it, I'm st- I will still have some, some hurt in my heart that it did not get nominated for Best Picture or, or at the very least, Best Director for Sean Baker. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll be rooting for Willem Dafoe, but I love Sam Rockwell, too. Um, so we'll be happy to see him win as well. All right. Moving right along, Best Actress now, the, the true heavyweight category yes. of the 90th of the 90th uh, edition of the Oscars. All right, here we go. Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water. Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, Sharshi Ronan for Lady Bird. And Meryl Streep for The Post. Wow. You know, any of these people, with maybe <laughs> the exception of Meryl Streep, I, I haven't seen The Shape of Water yet, but any of these people could win an Oscar in another year. I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah, it's it's it is something to behold. Um, but I think that this category, um, like the other two, to some extent, I mean, like the other two, we've had one person basically who has taken home um, the awards consistently. And obviously, Saoirse Ronan did win at the Golden Globes as well because of the way that they split the movies up by genre. Um, but Frances McDormand took home the the Golden Globe and the SAG award. Um, so, you know, I want to say that she's probably the favorite, and, and she, you know, I think she is. But I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that she is going to win uh, Best Actress just because um, it is such a strong field and also because this is a very abrasive character. Um, and so the Oscars, I think, tend to have a more an older voting demographic um, than the other award shows. So I can see maybe, you know, the way that this character is so cruel and, and to some extent, uh, so, so so uncompromising and so, you know, profane, um, you know, maybe some of the older voters won't connect with the character as much um, and might go for something like Saoirse Ronan um, or Sally Hawkins. even Sally Hawkins. Yeah, that was going to be the other name that I mentioned um, because she plays a, um, a mute character and the Oscars are, have been known okay. to um, go for actors who play disabled characters. I mean, you think Daniel Day-Lewis um, in My Left Foot, um, Marley Matlin um, back in the day. Um, you know, there, there is, I think, a higher degree of difficulty um, to playing a character like that. And so I think uh, I would not also I would also not be surprised if Sally Hawkins ended up taking this home. Yeah, I agree. I part of I mean part of me wants I again so I haven't yet seen Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water, but now having seen these other four films, I do think for me my pick would be Margot Robbie and I Tanya. That being said, yeah. I hear what you're saying and I think I can't really see the Oscars giving Margot Robbie the award for this film just for the nature of the character. Yes, I agree. Similar for similar reasons as you described for Frances McDormand's character. Right. And Meryl Streep is too same old, same old. And, you know, that being said, it's a strong performance. They, yes. they like Meryl Streep. They've given her awards in the past. Although it has been a little while since I think she's been, she's won the big award that she's nominated now. Oh, one of my facts for this is that she, this is her 21st nomination. And she extends her she extends her record that she already holds for no, most nominated performer, actor, or actress of all time. And, yeah, so I could see it be going to her, although I'd be disappointed. Um Still a good performance. Sharshi Ronan, I think, would be, of the ones that we're talking about, that I think actually have a shot at winning the award. At the end of the day, I think my pick would be uh, Sharshi Ronan for Lady Bird. 
uh, great performance yeah, I mean, from her. But yeah. I, she's my probably my favorite actress. Like at the, I think when all is said and done, I would not be surprised to see her achieve achieve a. I, well, I don't want to you know get too ahead of myself, but a Meryl Streep like acclaim by the end of her career because I think she's that good. And you look at what she's accomplished already, even though she's I think twenty three years old. Um, this is her third nomination, I believe, um, and there she shows no signs of slowing down. Although at some point she's not going to be able to play a high school um, character anymore. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. We'll see how she evolves over time. I hope you're right. I, I mean, in everything that I've seen her, I've I've been a huge fan. And uh, you know, if she gets a, goes ahead and gets a best actress in her bag, I hope that just spurs her forward for the rest yes. of her career, and she does end up getting. Uh, 20 plus nominations like Meryl Streep has in her career. One thing I do want to note before we move on, and this isn't really a fact, but something I think worth noting given the context that we've often mentioned over the course of our of the few episodes we've done so far, is that Casey Affleck will actually not be attending the Oscars this year, and therefore won't be presenting the Best Actress right. Award. Uh, presu- I mean, presumably due to the allocations surrounding him and yes. sexual harassment, sexual assault, and then the prevalence of the Me Too movement. So it'll be interesting to see who actually uh, presents that award, and I also thought it worth noting that Casey Affleck has bowed to the pressure and is not going to be attending the Oscars. And so the traditional uh, trend of the best actor presenting the best actress award and vice versa right. uh, will not be upheld this year. Worth I noting, think, we don't. I have to still remember um, Brie Larson, the um, yeah. the daggers yep. that she stared oh, at yes. Casey Affleck last year as she awarded him the best actor award. So I think that I'm sure that they wanted to avoid another moment like that happening um, with whoever ends up winning for best actress. Yeah. And I mean, it's a debate for another time, but I, it would be interesting to see what the actual response would be. Um, if, if he were to, if he were to present the award to, to see how the uh, person receiving the award would, would, would react um, walking up on stage, but we will not see that. He will not be there. And I think all in all for the best. Yeah. All right, so best actor category. I think we might see the the weakest one. Maybe we'll see. Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, I, it's to me, it's the most uh, predictable one as far as who's going to win. All right, we'll see. We'll see if the uh, the Academy flaunts you here. But anyway, the nominees are Timothy Chalamet for Call Me by Your Name, Daniel Day Lewis for Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, Gary Oldman for Dark Star, who I believe is who you're alluding to as the as the front runner, and then Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel, Esquire. Uh, quick facts before we do uh, talk about the frontrunner. Uh, this is the first time since 1990 that two Best Actor nominees, uh, in this case, Timothy Chalamet and Daniel Kaluuya, uh, have been in their 20s when they've been nominated for this for this time. So last time it happened was Tom Cruise and Kenneth Branagh in 1990. Huh. Yeah, and then also with this nomination, his eighth, Denzel Washington is the most nominated African-American actor now, and tied for fifth most nominated actor of all time with a ton of people whose names I'm not going to read. All right, so Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour. Yeah, he's the one. Um, on the note of Denzel Washington, you know, I'm sure it's a great performance. I just feel like the the Academy maybe had four names that were locks down on paper, and then they were they were just like, eh, why not Denzel Washington? You know, he's a safe pick. Uh, he's always great. Um, because I, I mean, I've, I've heard mostly negative reviews honestly of this movie roman j israel esquire um yeah i I remember seeing the trailer for it in one of the films that i saw back in the fall and i was like wow this movie is not look good yeah uh so i think it's kind of uh you know maybe the academy resorting to a safe choice um as as the fifth nominee but 
No matter, because as you said, Gary Oldman um, has got this award in the bag. Uh, he's got the whole, you know, longtime accomplished actor who's never won an Academy Award thing going for him. He's playing a historical character. Um, yeah, I mean, he's and he's won all of the awards up to this point. Um, yeah, I mean, he really disappears into the role of Winston Churchill um, in this movie. I know you haven't seen it yet. Um, yeah, I'm seeing but, it. I will see it before the Oscars, though. Okay, yeah. His performance really is the movie, um, at least in my opinion. Um, I didn't know there were other actors in the movie. I've only ever heard about, yeah. <laughs> about Gary Oldman in this film. Um, so, yeah, I think I think he's the one. Although, you know, shout out to Daniel Kaluuya and Timothy Chalamet, um, both getting nominated um, for... You know, in their 20s, like you said, um, very, very up and coming uh, young actors. And, uh, you know, Timothy Chalamet was also in uh, Lady Bird. So shout out to him for, for doing good work. Although I think the um, the prize has to go to Michael Stuhlbarg this year. Who oh, you're, st- you're stealing one of my facts. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I'll no, go. You, no, I'll you take you, it. I'll let you take it. No, you take it. Go ahead. <laughs> he was in Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water, and I think Phantom Thread. Was that the other one? Yeah, so, so he was in... Uh, uh, no, so not Phantom Thread X. He was, in was the, the post. He was in the post. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's in yeah. the post. So it's, yeah, it's the first time since Thomas Mitchell in 1940 that someone has appeared in three of the films nominated for Best Picture. But yeah. um, I think the the key part of that is he's actually not, and it, it, it's actually happened since then. But it's the first time since 1940 that someone has been in three of the films and not been nominated in an individual yeah. award for one of them. <laughs> so he really is just along for the ride, as they say. Yeah, maybe they could have at least given him a courtesy nomination for Best Supporting Actor or something, but um, yeah. But shout out to him nevertheless for, for picking good projects, I guess. For sure. Uh, one thing I do want to note, I do want to call it Daniel Kaluuya. I don't have any more to add of substance, but I will say Daniel Kaluuya was, he wasn't one of the nailed on. You, you mentioned that the Oscars had four people to put in and... I think we often talk about Get Out as a movie that released far too early in the year to actually get as much yeah. acclaim in the award season. And nevertheless, Daniel Kaluuya's performance has endured through that. And he's getting nominated here. He won at the Globes. And another fact that I didn't mention, actually, is this is the first time since 2003, I believe, um, that the winner at the Golden Globes for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Comedy, in this case Daniel Kaluuya, isn't going up against his, uh, I guess, counterpart winner of the Best Action Motion Picture Drama, which was James Franco, who has not been nominated here. Oh, true. I didn't even think about that. Yep. And so, you're killing it with these facts. Yeah. I mean, we'll maybe we'll talk about that in omissions when we circle back around and talk more holistically, but James Franco is not on the not on the nominations list, which, yeah, you, you think Daniel Denzel Washington replaced him, which is interesting if you mentioned that. That's a, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that, James james franco not being in it but yeah definitely that's a big snub yeah well nevertheless i think um if gary Oldman doesn't win i will see how i feel after having seen the movie but yeah. if it's anything like the best support supporting actress role i will also rant about gary Oldman not winning yes. <laughs> all right into the final two categories here the really really big hitters best director um christopher nolan for dunkirk jordan peele for get out greta gerwig for Lady Bird. Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water. So this is actually the first director nomination for Christopher Nolan at the Oscars, which I did not realize, uh, even though he's been nominated four times already by the Directors Guild. that's That was shocking to me. I guess I should know that. Um, but 
nevertheless, it's his first nomination. Jordan Peele is also the first ever black filmmaker to be nominated in the holy trinity of producing, directing, and screenwriting in the same year. So he's the first black filmmaker for that. And my favorite stat of the night comes now, actually. Yeah, here it is. So Greta Gerwig, Guillermo del Toro, and Jordan Peele are all only the fifth woman, Latin American, and black filmmakers, respectively, to ever be nominated for Best Director. Wow. What a stat. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know if the Oscars looks at these things and like, this would be cool. That, I mean, that being said, that, these are all very deserved they nominees in this category. numbers, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, well, no, they're all too old. They don't have a guy crunching numbers. <laughs> uh, not a typewriter problem. <laughs> right, exactly. But, that, I mean, that being said, these these are all very worthy nominees. Yeah. Yeah, this is, to me is the most competitive of the big six category. Um, because, you know, I think with the exception of Paul Thomas Anderson, maybe everybody has a really good chance of winning. Um, you think I so? Think, you think Chris Nolan has a good chance of winning? Yes, actually, I think, you know, I think Guillermo del Toro is probably my pick right now, but Christopher Nolan is probably my second choice, um, just because of the the tech. What he did technically with Dunkirk um, was was really impressive, um, and he's he's also never been nominated, never won, um, but obviously is a huge name in the world of movies. So I think it would be long overdue, honestly, for him to get an Oscar. Um, yep. But Jordan Peele, I could also see him um, getting one just because of Get Out was such a huge cultural moment this year. And for him as a first-time director, um, you know, I could see them recognizing him. And the same goes for Greta Gerwig, um, especially her being a female director and the uh, Golden Globes completely leaving her out of the directing category. Yeah, that was um, garbage. I, you know, I could definitely see them giving it to her as well. Um, that being said, I do think it is going to be Guillermo del Toro, just because The Shape of Water, you know, the 13 nomination shows that it is the movie with the blend of technical um, polish, technical impressiveness, and great storytelling. Um, so I think that Guillermo del Toro will be uh, will be recognized for what he was able to accomplish with that movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't think either of us have yet seen The Shape of Water. No, but... I've not seen it yet. Right, but I will be interested to, to revisit my thoughts on this when I have seen it. I think, just given the past, uh, like, the Oscars haven't always been kind to Del Toro, given his past works. Like, they were pretty dismissive of Pan's Labyrinth, I feel like, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. I'm with you. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is the one who, it's almost a courtesy nomination here. Um, I mean, he's a great director. No yeah, he, wrong, he but... is, but I don't get the, I don't get the, the sense that phantom thread from a director's perspective or i mean to be fair i don't think really from any perspective in terms of this year's awards is gonna is really expected to take home anything i mean maybe costume design i haven't gone really deep into the awards to see because it is a period piece um but yeah i don't see him having a real shot at this but like you said i think you can create very compelling arguments for the other four nominees in this category and i'll be glued to the television um, for this award in particular, because yeah, there the other. I mean, all five of them are deserved, but the, the four, especially that we've talked about, as being the the front. I mean, can you can four of the five be front runners? I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah the, they all have a good chance, and and it'll be. I think it's a good outcome. There's a good story regardless of the outcome. I think is is a fair way to put it. Oh, one other thing I'll add too is that Guillermo del Toro did just win at the Directors Guild Awards, um, 
which, like the SAG Awards for actors, uh, have been known for being very predictive of who ends up winning the Academy Award. So maybe the, the writing is on the wall there. Maybe, and, you know, well-deserved. I haven't seen Shape of Water yet, but his... I've talked about this when we talked about at the Golden, Glo- the Golden Globes, and I think that his kind of filmmaking and storytelling is something that there isn't enough of in Hollywood. Yeah. And to honor that and to promote that as a as a method of storytelling and a creative vision that is accepted in Hollywood, I think that would do would do the industry a lot of good. That being said, Absolutely. Greta Gerwig winning Best Director would also do the industry a lot of good. Yes. So <laughs> there are compelling arguments all around. All right. Last category, the one with the most nominees that we're doing here. Best Picture. All right, Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So you stole my Michael Stolberg fact from me already, so I'll (laughs) skip past that one and say that, uh, so Get Out is the first horror film since The Sixth Sense, actually, in 2000 to be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, of course, you'll know, Scott, that the only horror movie that has ever won Best Picture is Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if you think that's going to change this year, but uh, Get Out. What do you, I mean, what do you think of this category? Does Get, does get Out have a chance? Uh, I don't think so. Um, All right, well, they burst that bubble. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry to... Uh, I, you know, I would love to see it win, cause, mostly because I think Silence of the Lambs is one of the most overrated films of Ooh. all time, but I'm just going to move straight on from that hot take um, to... Uh, I think that this category got a whole lot more interesting when Martin McDonough was not nominated for Best Director um, because it is rare that you will see a movie um, win Best Picture when the director is not nominated. And, of course, it has happened recently. Um, Ben Affleck for Argo, um, I believe, is the most recent example. He was not nominated for Best Director, but uh, Argo ended up taking home Best Picture. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure Tom McCarthy got nominated for Spotlight either. That's the um, one. I, was, I thought that's the one you were going for because I didn't think he got nominated for Best Director. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, it does happen, obviously, some. Um, but certainly, um, I think that this did put a damper maybe a little bit on the hopes that three billboards had for winning Best Picture after taking home top prize at the Globes and at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Um, so I definitely think that the two movies which are now side by side with it are The Shape of Water, um, obviously most nominations, um, and then Lady Bird is my other um, other movie that I think um, could be could, could, could end up um, pulling off a little bit of an upset um, and taking home Best Picture just because it is you know it's kind of a crowd pleaser. It's a more lighthearted um, movie, um, and you know you recognize that there are. Um, that there are women involved as far as the, le- the leading role and behind the camera. Um, so, yeah, I think I think really for me, it's those three uh, that are at the top of the pile. I, it's weird to me that Darkest Hour got nominated for Best Picture. Um, yeah, people ha- people have mentioned that. Like I said, the, this performance is really the whole movie, um, and I felt like if you're going to nominate, what is there's nine movies that are nominated? Yeah, and it's actually possible for them to nominate ten. They just chose to do yeah, nine. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. That's the thing. It's at their discretion. I feel like if you're going to nominate nine movies, I just don't know why Darkest Hour would be the ninth movie that you would include and not the Florida Project. But I think there are a or couple... Even, or even Coco. I mean... Yeah, there are a couple like, ones out there that people have been like, 
one not not only could you have nominated one more film if if you had chosen to, but you also nominated this film, Darkest Hour, whose perf- no, lead performance has been praised, you know, in every way possible. But as a film, does not stand up to some of these other movies. It is a good movie, but it sure. is sure you know a Oscar Beatty historical drama, which you know maybe that's probably that's probably why they went with it over something like the Florida Project. But yeah. um, that's that's a little egregious to me. But yeah, um, if you put a gun to my head, um, I think I'm going to go with The Shape of Water to take home Best Picture. Um, Just because of what I kind of said about the directing category, because it does have the technical aspects of it, um, and also the great storytelling. And with 13 nominations, um, it's clear that the Academy connected with really every aspect of this movie. So uh, yeah, that's going to be my pick, I think. Yeah, really quickly, the fact-checking gods are smiting me. Uh, Tom, Tom, Tom uh, McCarthy, Tom McCarthy, right? He was the director of, of yes. Spotlight. Yeah, he was nominated for best director. Okay. So, so well, I thought he wasn't. Ignore it. Well, I'm taking full full blame for that one because I definitely right. was was the one leaning into that. Anyway, yeah, Shape of Water. Again, I'm looking forward to seeing it to see how I see what I think of it. That being said, for me right now, just in this cat, oh, the one that I was thinking of earlier that I can't believe that like I Tanya wouldn't get nominated over over Darkest oh, Hour. Oh yes, that would yeah. too. Yeah, that's a crazy thing. Yeah, I mean, again, they could have just nominated a tenth film and left yeah, it, yeah. And, it, and then they could include everyone. But uh, <laughs> I was I was floored because I Tanya right now is still my my best the best one for me in the last year. Anyway, yeah, I agree with you. I think if I had to pick one of the films on this list again, my my goal is to see all these films before the Oscars. Um, We'll see if I'm able to accomplish that. I think I'll be able to do it. But I think for me right now, Lady Bird is probably what I would... It was my personal pick. Again, I would be interested to see how that changed once I see... I mean, I don't expect Phantom Thread to change my mind. But Shape of Water very much could. And I'm interested to look at that. I think... I For me, three billboards shouldn't win. Just my opinion. I don't think it, it ranks up to Lady, to Lady Bird. Uh, I don't... I mean, we'll we'll talk about it. We'll talk about in the future. episode of Some Like It, Scott. I'm um, kidding. No, Three Billboards is definitely deserving of being nominated, yeah. just not winning. Uh, if that, I mean, maybe, I mean, that's maybe a hot take in some circles. I don't think it's that hot of a take. Not no, as hot, not not as hot as your Silence of the Lambs take. Not as hot as not as hot as your Silence of the Lambs take. Yeah, yeah, my 27 uh, year old hot take. <laughs> yeah, but uh, nevertheless, I, I I think that my pick would be Lady Bird. I wouldn't be surprised if Shape of Water wins. Like you said, it's the most nominations. And you know, like you said, it resonates with with all all aspects of the film. It's a holistic film for for the Academy. Yeah. That being said, I think my prediction is going to be that they uh, they give it to three billboards and then correct it to the post <laughs> and then correct it again just to outdo last year to Shape of Water. And then uh, they give it to I Tanya, right? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that that'll be that'll be a good sound clip for this time next year too. So yeah, so. I think that we're not going to make so we we like sort of laid out some predictions here. I kind of want to do an official predictions list in a in a future episode when we're closer to the Oscars. Okay. But we will put that off for now and we'll revisit that uh, in a later episode because we do have a full month before the Oscars proper. All right. So kind of last thing, we wanna, I like I mentioned, we want to zoom out here and leave a little bit of time to talk about people we think missed out. We've mentioned kind of a few on our way through the nominees. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind that either it's a film or, or actors or actresses that missed out on nominations? 
Well, I'll talk about two that we haven't mentioned because we have mentioned some of the big ones like uh, like James Franco and like I, Tanya and Florida Project missing yeah. out on Best Picture. And Martin um, McDonough. So a couple in, yeah. you know, a couple smaller categories. Uh, the first one that surprised me a little bit was the in the um, in the uh, foreign film category, um, the German movie In the Fade, which won the Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes, um, was not even nominated. Um which it's actually I have not seen it yet, but is a movie that I have been interested in seeing. I think is actually showing at a theater near me, um, so I might try and catch that sometime soon. But yeah, it's so so I can't I, you know I can't comment in depth on it. Um, but I think it's just strange that the movie um, won at the Golden Globes and it didn't even get a sniff at the Oscars. Um, you don't see that a lot in the foreign film category, usually because, you know, each country gets to submit one film, basically. Um, so usually you're just seeing about the same five movies nominated at, at all the awards shows. Um, so you would have thought at least that In the Fade would get a nomination, if not a win. Um, and then my other one, and this to me is, have you ever seen that meme that is like disappointed but not surprised? Yeah, mm-hmm. This, to me, the full embodiment of that meme was the Lego Batman movie not being nominated mm. for Best Animated Feature. Yeah, um, I was going to bring that one up. Yeah, because I say disappointed but not surprised because the Lego movie did not get nominated, which to me is... like I don't know if there's ever been a greater travesty in the history of the Oscars because that was... It's probably the best animated movie of all time, in my opinion. And the Lego Batman movie is probably in the top five animated movies of all time. Um, and I don't understand how the... It's almost like the, that they were looking for any animated movie to nominate except for this movie. And case in point, The Boss Baby is nominated for Best anima- Animated Feature. Like, I laughed out loud when I saw that The Boss Baby is nominated. Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I feel like even... If you're not going to nominate the Lego Batman movie, there were still some other animated movies much more well regarded than The Boss Baby that, you know, might have snuck in there as the fifth nominee. But I don't know what it is. I think these movies are just too fast paced and too, I don't want to say quirky because that makes it sound dismissive. That, that's kind of something. Um, but I, for whatever reason, they are not connecting with Oscar voters, um, despite the fact that they are connecting with literally every other single person in the movie-going world, critics, fans, everyone. Like, I think the Lego movie is close to 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and the Lego Batman movie is in the high 80s or 90s. Um, so it's, it, it is mind-boggling to me, uh, because these movies are they're so creative, they're ingenious, um, they have, you know, great people involved at every level. Um, it's it's really a shame. Um, and it, it, maybe it sounds trite to get so upset about the Lego Batman movie, but um, yeah, it's 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 a shame because it was one of my it was def- I mean, it was easily in my top ten movies of um, of the year. The Lego Batman movie. Yeah, I I was also really surprised. I mean, that being said. I mean, Coco's going to win, right? So that category is locked up yeah, pretty I tight. Think so. I mean, Disney, it's Disney and Pixar. Another win for Pixar. Yeah, I was going to say, it's Disney and Pixar. So it's, it's. do they even vote? I'm not even sure they vote on that category when Disney and Pixar are together. I think it would 
would be cool to see the breadwinner win just because this is like either the third straight nomination or like the third nomination four years for the direct and her name is failing me at the moment but she's irish um and she like i said i think it's three and four years she did song of the sea and secret of kells which were both nominated for best animated feature as well yeah Um, it's nora toomey nora toomey yeah Yeah. i i want to say that they're all like hand-drawn animation movies too um but maybe i'm making that up but yeah i think it would be cool to see maybe a lesser known um animated movie um take it home especially since nora toomey has made a little bit of a name for herself now um but yeah i think this is coco's to lose yeah, the Lego, so the Lego movie had a 96 on Rotten Tomatoes, and the Lego Batman movie has a 91, so you're definitely right. They're, they're, they're critically acclaimed. All right, yeah, the big one that I was going to mention, we've already talked about, I mean, we, we briefly brought up Martin McDonough as well as yeah. being a person who missed out, and I don't really have any more to add. I can't think of any others that are missing out. The Lego Batman movie was the one that I was also going to mention. I haven't really dug too deep into the into the deeper categories um, but I think that I think that's I think that's probably good enough for our Oscars discussion this week. We'll be back in a couple weeks to to give out our predictions and and officially jot those down and lock those down to see how wrong we are. Oh, and, one final uh, interesting note. Oh, um, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, uh, I'm surprised he didn't have this stat ready to go. But Logan, first move, first superhero movie to yep. be nominated for uh, a screenplay Oscar. So shout out to Scott Frank. Uh, for for achieving that, yeah, I, I I saw it and I wasn't gonna bring up a super. I was gonna take one episode to not bring up a superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I brought it up. So there you go. Yeah, so you brought it up. That's good. I did notice that. I thought it was cool. I was kind of surprised. I mean, Logan was good, but it was a very cliche narrative arc. I mean, like, I mean, I don't, did you see it? Did you see Logan? No, I haven't seen it. No, like, I mean, it resonates with me. I mean, I, I cried in it multiple times, which I'm not. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm not a crier, but I don't easily cry in movies. I don't yeah. think, and it it, it 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 was a tearjerker in parts, and the ending is is compelling. You're, I mean, what happens over the course of that film? But I think mean, best screenplay. I don't know. I I'd have to look at the category closely to see what it's up against. But um, it's it's no, good though. I don't think it's gonna win. But yeah. Oh, I don't think I don't think so either. But but it, it's cool that it was nominated. I think it, it it gains a little bit more legitimacy for a category of movies that I. That even if it's not, even if it's a category of movies that's not critically acclaimed very often in terms of awards. I mean, there, I mean, there are movies that often get decent reviews, but don't often show up at the awards shows beyond like the maybe like, but besides like the costume design or visual effects yeah. categories. Uh, it's cool to see them outside of those categories, and especially with a movie like Black Panther coming out in a couple weeks, um, that that movie's really been cited as a as a cultural force of a movie, not dissimilar to Get Out. So I, it'll be interesting. I mean, it's very early in the, in the year in terms of qualifying for next year's Oscars. I don't know if it'll register then, but it'll be interesting to see how that movie is received as a superhero movie going into. Yeah, next I year. agree. I think action movies in general are very underrepresented at um, at awards shows, and I, I just think that um, for whatever reason, they people don't appreciate the uh, what what goes into. Uh, making an action movie. So, yeah, I think I'm definitely glad to see something like Logan um, getting a nomination in in one of the big categories. And I think, you know, Baby Driver was worth a shout, too. And I think it did get some technical nominations. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I am looking down the list of nominees right now. It did get a film, Baby Driver, that is, did get a film editing nominee, I see. 
nomination. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to quickly scan. I don't really see it anywhere. Oh, uh, sound editing, of course it should, and sound mixing. Yes. Uh, I know that should this win, is. The, should win for that. It's the first year in a while that where it's the sound editing category and the sound mixing category perfectly map. I know that was a stat oh, that cool. I, I didn't pull that one out because we weren't talking about it. But now yeah. that now that it's come up, I will mention that that the five films, which are Baby Driver, Blade Runner, Dunkirk, Shape of Water, and Star Wars: The Last Jedi, they are both the five films are nominated for both best sound editing and best sound mixing, which hasn't happened in a while. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, and with that stat, I think that we will draw to a close our Oscar nominations for today. Let's take another break and be back, and we'll talk about what we've been watching outside of the theater. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us as we turn now to part three of today's Some Like It Scott. Before we get later on to our discussion topic of the week, we do have a couple different things to discuss. And I'd like to first give a few minutes for us to talk about the things we've been watching recently. So for me, I've been watching something that you have quite a bit to say about, I know, and I did mention it a little bit earlier in our discussion, and that is The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I'm only about halfway through it currently, so we will have another opportunity down the road to talk about this more holistically. But that being said, this TV show is really something. The entire cast is pretty incredible. Um, I mentioned, I think the context I mentioned earlier was that Bruce Greenwood is a member of the cast here and he was in the post. And I don't know, but the one person who's grabbing my attention, I texted you about this when I was watching the episode uh, the other day, is Courtney B. Vance's performance as Johnny oh, Cochran. So yeah, his performance is one of the, in one of the episodes I was watching recently, it was just absolutely stunning like comparing it in my mind to alice and janney in itania like that's how good it is um you know he's someone who's been more well known for his tv roles rather than his film ones i can't even think of a big a major film that he's been in but i can think of a couple tv show roles um throughout his career and yeah i mean is this the pinnacle for him i think it has to be right i mean i I mean i I think the the thing about it is that johnny cochran is such a larger than life character that like it would have been so easy to just take him very over the top and make him a cartoon but like he makes him a three-dimensional character and it's amazing yeah i mean i i can definitely understand uh, why he took home the emmy for best actor in a limited series at a canter i'd imagine i mean i I don't remember the emmys from that year but i mean geez i i don't i'm not i'm only halfway through the series so i have a limited scope at which to talk about this film but all the performances are great i mean i highlighted johnny cochran's uh, sorry, Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran there, but even John Travolta, who's not an actor that I'm particularly enchanted by a lot of the time, but he's really good in his role. I mean, he's very, very good. A little hammy in some parts. Uh, sure, but sure. But yeah, yeah he, he, it, he does a good job. I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with that the, the real-life version right. of his character, so I don't know if it's an accurate portrayal, because it is a very over-the-top performance. Yes. But it's one that, I mean, I find... Enjoyable isn't even the right word, but I'm, I'm I am drawn to it when he's on the screen, and you know this kind of not necessarily bumbling, but this person who's trying to hold on uh, to control over a situation that's like so clearly out of his control. Uh, I I think he does a really good job personally. 
Yeah, also a couple other performances that I really enjoyed were yep. uh, David Schwimmer playing Robert Kardashian. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like he was so irrelevant for so many years and he really came back. Yeah, and I like, I don't know, Card- Robert Kardashian to me is almost like the tragic hero of this whole thing um, because he he sticks by his friend's OJ's side only to, you know, realize as things go on that he, like OJ did this, like, and, and now he's, he's trapped and he can't get out. Um, so, you know, I thought that he, he did a great job for portraying character with a very interesting narrative arc. Then the other performance, um, that I thought was great was Sterling K Brown playing, uh, Chris Darden. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I thought that he, uh, he brought a lot to, you know, every, everyone knows about Marsha Clark and Johnny Cochran and their showdown in the courtroom. Uh, but Chris Darden, I, you know, played a huge role in the, in the, uh, OJ trial. So I thought that he was able to really, uh, really leave a mark with that character. And obviously Sarah Paulson's great. Too. Yeah. I was going to say, um, you know, all there, I mean, it was nominated for so many awards yeah. at the, at the Emmys with Courtney B. Vance and Sarah Paulson, and I also believe Sterling K. Brown taking home awards. I think think all three of them did get awards uh, at the Emmys that year, and I mean, it was nominated a bunch more at one outstanding limited series, so it really really cleaned up, and it deserves it. Again, we'll revisit it when I finish it, but I... I couldn't not talk about it a little bit as I as I'm only halfway through. It was worth talking about even now. But I'll throw it over to you now. What have you been watching recently? You know, since our last episode outside the theater. Well, we'll move from what I think is one of the greatest series of all time, People versus O.J. Simpson, to another uh, series which I think is one of the greatest series of all time, but uh, in a very different way. Um, and this is a show that I have been watching. Oh my gosh! Since the eleventh season, and it is now in its thirtieth season. Uh, is um, it so Law and Order? Give you an idea of how <laughs> okay. long I've been watching it, and I've seen pretty much. Maybe there's one season I haven't seen, but I've you know I went back and watched all the other ones. Um, and to me, it is just about as consistent and dependable a show as you will be able to find, and that is um, the most decorated uh, reality competition program in the history of the Emmys, uh, The Amazing Race on CBS. Um, you really you know, built that up, man. You really built that up. I, I see. I knew you where you were going, but I, I really hope everyone who listens to that is just devastated by that at the end. No, come on. If they're devastated, it's only because they haven't watched the show before because it is, um, you know, I think it gets a bad rep because it is. it falls in the reality competition um, genre alongside stuff like Survivor and Big Brother. But to me, what makes the show so iconic is how you know it actually is reality as opposed to those shows where you have all of this artificial drama and all this tension for the you know between the the I want to say characters because that's really what they more are they're more like characters than they are actual people that you know is basically manufactured by the show. Um, but really, everything is on the Amazing Race. I mean, you know, occasionally you'll get a little editing flourish that sort of amps up, amps up the drama. But like, as far as the you know interactions between the people and you know, what goes on, like it's all it is all real. And um, you know, just the whole novelty of getting to travel around the world with all of these uh, teams every single season. It, I mean, like you know, I feel like I've seen 
little part of every country now, having watched this show for so long. Um, but it's really like it's you know, it, in addition to being just a great competitive um, you know competition show, it is also like a you know it's a travel show because they're going to all of these exotic locations and you know there's you know beautiful shots always of um, you know the the locations that they're going to uh, and you know it, every season it seems like there is a great cast of characters that um, or cast of people I should say um, that you can really get behind um, and who don't have to put on a persona for the camera to you know make you connect with them um so yeah you know shout out to bertram van munster elise dogganary the creators of amazing race and shout out to phil coagan who has hosted all 30 seasons um yeah like you know to consistently put out such a quality product um and you know this show won the emmy like i said so many times in a row that i think after a while they were like we're just going to give to something else just just because um so to constantly put out such a quality product um, is, you know, really speaks to how great this show is. And if you've never watched a season, you know, it's all on Hulu, I think. So you can start from the beginning. Um, although I have to say, if you're going to, you know, start from the beginning, I have to start at season three just because the first two seasons, they were really still working out a lot of the, um, you know, the the details of how the race was going to work. So it's a little, well, it's a little messy in the first couple of seasons, but um, yeah, it's super compelling show. Yeah. I'm not too, I've watched a few episodes just casually. I've never watched a full season. Yeah. I've never really, I mean, I've never been someone who actually watches reality TV that much. Yeah. And, and I'm not either. I just, the, the show to me, it transcends all of that. Definitely. And just reading up, I mean, when you mentioned that this is what you wanted to talk about today, I looked it up, I did a little research, and it, you're right, it's, it's, had th- it's in its 30th season currently, or has it finished its 30th season? No, I, it's in the middle of the 30th season. It's in the middle of the 30th season. That's what made me want to talk about it, because I've been watching the 30th season. Sure, right, exactly. Um, but it, it didn't start 30 years ago, right? So they've been, they've been no, putting they out, they've, and my, I, mean, I just mean that to say that they've been putting out this show more than once a year. And yeah, exactly. They usually do two seasons. A year, and I think the first season was maybe 2001, yep. so 17, season, 17 yep. years. Yep, and I, I just mean this to say that a show, a, a reality show is not funded if it is not watched, and it may not, yes. and it's cleaned up in its category at the Emmys. I think it's, I think I was looking up some facts, it's like when 10 of the 12 times uh, it's been up, it's been like possible for it to win the award, because it's mm-hmm. in a category that hasn't always existed at the Emmys until, yeah. until more recently. Uh, but 10 of the 12 years that category has existed, it's won. It's crazy. So it's absolutely dominant at the awards show. It doesn't get talked about as much, like you said, because it's, like, it's not like a Bachelor or a Bachelorette or even yeah, an American it's not Idol. it's a water cooler show sure. like that. But I'm honestly surprised it doesn't get talked about more. Like the idea of a travel show like this. Like people are really into travel shows. Like those well, – like, go ahead. And like you said, people are obviously watching it. Um, yeah, because, it wouldn't get know, renewed if it didn't like, have a good rating. Like, I mean, you know, we talk about it isn't a water cooler show. And like, you know, that is why I've thought – you know, as the show, as it, the seasons have gone, as, as this, there have been more and more seasons, you know, after every season, I always kind of wonder, well, is this it? Like, is this the last time we'll see The Amazing Race? Like, just because I don't know how many people have really stuck with it for so long like I have. But obviously they are. Um, so, yeah, I hope the show continues till I die. Well, I... <laughs> on that grim note, I think yeah. I, I'll, I'll wish you that. I hope that it does last so you can continue to enjoy it. But I think the last thing that we've been watching, which we both watched in the last few days, and that we did promise 
our uh, listeners that we would talk about once it started is the new season of Movie Trivia Schmodown. Why don't you uh, take over for this one? Because this is your baby. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited to talk about the Schmodown uh, because this is something I've gotten really into on, uh, on YouTube within the last year. Um, watched every episode multiple times um, and, and really wanted uh, Scott to give it a shot because there's a really, uh, really devoted community out there um, for this for this show that is on the Collider Videos channel. And I talked about it on, the, on our first episode. Um, episode zero, I believe, technically. Yes, episode zero, yeah. Yes. Um, I, you know, just sort of described what it was, so I won't really get into that too much, but, you know, just to reiterate, it is a movie trivia league um, quiz show uh, that combines, you know, trivia along with, like, world wrestling-style kayfabe storytelling. Um which sounds crazy, um, and that's what everyone says. Even Christian Harloff, who's the commissioner, admits that it sounds kind of like a crazy idea, but yeah. it was somehow all- it, it works so well. Um, it was only my commitment uh, commitment to you that I would watch it that got me to pass it, because when you were describing it to me, I was totally with it. Yeah. Like, the idea of a nerdy movie trivia show, I'm like, I'm all about that. <laughs> and then when you throw in the personalities, you're like, oh, that's kind of a... It kind of turns you off. It turned me off a little bit. But... I know for me, I'll I'll speak about my experience since I am kind of new to it. Like I watched I watched all this yesterday on Saturday. In yeah. terms of I, I read your the the primer you sent me on some of the overarching stories, narratives, yeah, so themes. I'll, I'll just say for for the Schmodown fans who might be listening that um, I did send Scott a primer that really describes you know all the characters um where the storylines currently sit as we go into season five um and also um he is although he's a newcomer i did show him one episode over uh over the christmas holiday and you know there's always this debate on the schmodown page of what's the best match to show someone who's trying to get into the schmodown and everyone always talks about these like you know great super competitive high quality matches between people like mark riley and dan merle and you know these these great schmodown players um but this the episode that i ended up showing scott was the um team team showdown between the wangers and the mega powers back from a couple seasons ago um which certainly is not not even approaching the highest quality schmodown match that there is out there in terms of actual trivia knowledge on the part of the competitors and back in the day when finstock wasn't banned so Yes, exactly. The, that's how that's how uh, that's how far back it goes. Um, but the Mega Powers to me is like the most entertaining team. Uh, like the, just the pairing of Makuga and Finstock was hilarious. Although now Makuga and Dewberry are already uh, already making a name for themselves as the Wildberries. Um, so I think they they have a chance to give the Mega Powers a run for their money. So I thought that would just be a good episode to show Scott up front. Um, you know to. to because it is one of the more entertaining episodes. Um, but yeah, uh, this is, I guess, the first proper taste of the Schmodown that, that Scott got. And this is, you know, a huge match to start Season 5, the triple threat match between JTE, Mike Kalinowski, and Rachel Cushing, the top three competitors for the number one contender spot and a singles title challenge against Sam Levine, who's the current belt holder. Um, so yeah, I, as a newcomer, um, I want to just kind of get what your general impressions were, you know, what did you, were there any standout moments in the match? Um, 
any Mark Ellis one-liners that you uh, that stuck <laughs> out to you? Yeah, just what, what were your general impressions as a newcomer to the Schmodown? There were a couple Mark Ellis one-liners that did that did give me. <laughs> He's good for a couple. Yeah, I mean, he. All, there, I remember there was. A, I don't actually remember the specific one-liner. Maybe you do because you, you. I feel like you sometimes have a better memory of these things than I do. Yeah. But uh, there also were a couple one-liners which definitely we could not repeat on this podcast yeah. that were deeply inappropriate and. I think Christian Harloff probably was was a little uh, horrified, although he's probably used to it by now. Uh, but overall, I think I was, I mean, I was hooked enough by the one episode you showed me and my promise that I would at least give it a try once it actually started in season five. And even if it wasn't the most compelling match, uh, yeah. I mean, we don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, maybe. I don't know if, no, if we, we want to... we can spoil it. All right, yeah. So, I mean, it was, a, it was kind of a blowout, actually. Uh, uh, Rachel Cushing... Ran away with it, just destroyed, sure. destroyed Mike Kalinowski, and and didn't wasn't given too much of a challenge by JTE either. And yeah, as far as the match goes, like yeah, to some extent she wasn't given much of a challenge by JTE, but JTE didn't play a terrible match. Yeah. Like he scored seven points out of a possible nine in the first round. Yeah, um, and and she, yeah, she played outstanding. Like her for her opening yeah. round was crazy, and, and and her second round as well. She she had an incredible game. That's the thing, like, Rachel was just so on fire in this game that even JTE playing a solid game couldn't keep track with her. And then you had Kalinowski, and I'll just say, (laughs) I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit, but I thought Kalinowski had a chance to actually pull off the upset in this because, you know, they made a big deal at, like, the, the, um, when the competitors had their little segment where they each talk uh, about how Kalinowski had like 16% of the vote or something in the yeah, poll about yeah. who, who people thought was going to win this match. And I was like, I don't think people are giving Kalinowski enough credit. And then he comes out and he has this great entrance as Cobra, as Sylvester Stallone's character from Cobra. And I was like, oh man, like I think Mike might actually take this. That actually might have been my, I think that was my highlight of, of the episode. It was yeah. such a funny, and I was totally, I mean, I'm not someone who's used to grand entrances like that i didn't exactly know what to expect but i i was caught off guard in a very positive way by that and i laughed pretty hard oh yeah the schmodown is known for some of its like uh, great entrances like that is honestly that the the cobra entrance is really just the tip of the iceberg um there there are some pretty incredible ones if you go back and and watch some of the old matches but yeah i think kalinowski just like he never got in a good rhythm and you know, after the first round, he had, I think, three points, maybe. Yeah, he had gotten um, three of the last four questions, but he, he flunked the first four in the first round. Yeah, but the the thing that happened, you know, and and it, it's bad because he was playing against really high-quality players, so you don't want to fall that far behind in the first round ever, but the wheel round is always a place where you have a chance to make up some ground just because luck is an element of it. Yeah. Um, but not only did Kalinowski only scored three points in the first round, but he had possibly the worst luck you could possibly get in the wheel round, yeah. like outside of him spinning opponent's choice and his uh, opponent spinning spinner's choice. Like Rachel spun his his best category, comic, comic book books. movies. Yep. Um, and, you know, tactically, this is something that I have always thought, and Christian and Mark pointed this out after the match, that I thought was a great move by Rachel, and I don't, and I always wondered why more people didn't do it. But when you spin the other person's like best category, even if you don't feel super confident, if you feel pretty confident, take the category because then it is off the board. Um, and even if you have to go down to multiple choice to get these answers, like you know, don't at least don't give them a chance to steal. Um, 
And especially when you're playing against someone like Kalinowski, who he's a very good player, but he, you know, we saw that there are definitely limits to his knowledge. Um, so if you can deny him what is clearly his strongest category in comic book movies, I think it's a great move, and it definitely worked out for Rachel. Obviously, she's really strong in comic book movies too. I mean, she's really strong in everything. But then to, you know, to cap things off, Kalinowski comes up and spins Oscar movies, which is Rachel's best category. Um, so and then, really, and then respin. Not- doesn't he also respin Oscar movies then too? Or am I thinking? Yeah, that? he's spun the same thing both times. Yeah. Um, which people have their theories too about how you need to spin the wheel and like <laughs> there are a lot of theories, but um, but Kalinowski like it just was not happening for him in this match, um, and I think JTE he had all the confidence in the world um, as he usually does when he comes into these matches, and after he had such a great 2017, um, he only lost one match I think, um, and that was the Ultimate Showdown Finals against Sam Levine. Um, so, you know, he had every right to be confident coming into this match, but there was no stopping the crusher. Um, Indeed. So, yeah. Indeed. Um, and then, so then I'll just, before we move on, there were some big things that happened with these storylines as well in the uh, conclusion of this match. Um, yep. So there were three things in particular um, that happened really in the uh, at the end of this match. So first of all, we had Brianne, Miss Movies giving Kalinowski's interview, since Kalinowski apparently was in no shape to give the interview, um, with Mark Riley. Shout out, nice to see Mark Riley um, doing the interviews. But, um, and Brianne, uh, you know, they're being very close to the vest about what exactly is going on between Brianne and Mike, but uh, Brianne basically hinted that what some people have been theorizing that we're looking at a new faction with Brienne as manager and Mike as, um, you know, the, the first player in that faction because um, she, she teased a team match. Um, and then when Mark Riley asked her, uh, so a team match between you and, you, you know, with you and Mike as a team, and Brienne said, no, just a team match. Well, she didn't say no. She just said, it's a team match. That's all I'm going to say. So it s- says to me that maybe she is not um, – she, she has actually retired, as she kind of hinted at the end of the last season, um, and is going to be managing a new faction. But I'll be interested to see who Kalinowski's teammate is going to be in this team match, um, whether it's going to be Adam Gertler, who is his teammate from DC Movie News, or whether he's going to move on to a new partner. So we had that uh, plot line. Then in JTE's interview, he challenged Roca, um, which... You know, I don't know how serious of a challenge it actually was. Um, so we'll see if that actually comes to fruition or not. But you know, that would obviously be a, a great match. Uh, two of the Schmodown icons right there um, going at it. Um, although, as JTE will point out, he has never lost to Roca like in any division. I don't think. Um, and then finally, the big reveal um, at the end. You know, we it was teased at the end of last season who was going to be Rachel Cushing's new partner for her. Um, big team match with Tom Dagnino and Ken Knapsack that's coming up. Um, pretty much everyone thought it was going to be Clark Wolf. Um, and I, at the end of this episode, you know, we had the little scene. I almost, honestly, I almost clicked out of the video after the stats segment with Frank Janish. Um, but then luckily I didn't. And we, we had this little scene with Rachel where she's on the phone with someone. Um, that's another point of discussion. Who is she on the phone with? Some, a lot of people think Emma Fife, um, that she might be joining up with her faction. But and Rachel said something like, oh, i got to go. My partner's here. Then she walks out the door and goes, hey, partner. 
and like shuts the door and I thought, well, great, here's the cliffhanger. But then comes right back and the door opens and sure enough, there's Clark Wolf. Uh, and I, I, I just really like the way that they handled this in general because everyone had already pretty much called that it was Clark. So it really would have been kind of pointless to wait another two weeks for the, for the team match and then reveal that Clark was her partner because everyone will be like, well, yeah, of course, we knew it was going to be Clark. So I like the fact that she comes out and says, yeah, well, of course it's me, you know. Um, but I think this is going to be an amazing team. Um, the Shire Wolves, great name, first of all. Um, yeah, that is a great and name. Then, and, uh, you know, Clark, there's, there's a big deal about the fact that, um, you know, Rachel... Clark is kind of the reason that Rachel got into the Schmodown because Clark was like the first female player who really made a name for herself and was actually the rookie of the year in 2016, um, which then, of course, Rachel got into the Schmodown last year and was the rookie of the year for 2017 and really thanked Clark a lot during her awards show speech. Um, yeah, and so, we, we haven't seen Emma Fife yet this year, but she, I mean, she did, she won the manager bowl last year. So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, that's what I said. A lot of people think that that may have been who Rachel was on the phone with because the next step for this team is, you know, are they going to go alone or are they going to join up with the faction? And I think it would make a lot of sense for them to join up with Emma's faction because Emma's faction is all about taking down the lion's den and being this sort of heroic faction. And that is 100% what Rachel is for, especially after her partner, you know, betrayed her to go to the lion's den um yeah and they have andreku and also sam whitwer i believe yes um i don't you know i don't really know what factor that sam whitwer is going to play because he's going to crush star uh, wars for them that's it yeah because he well for one he's an actor like he he actually you know he's in stuff um and yeah he's only ever competed in the star wars division so i'm not sure how much of a factor he's going to play but it is cool that their faction has a title belt um, because Sam does hold the Star Wars title belt currently. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, I think that Clark and Rachel are going to absolutely demolish um, Ken and Dagnino because Dagnino is not a great player and Ken is slightly above average. But I mean, and then, but then Rachel and um, Clark are just absolute um, beasts. And yeah, so it, it's just cool to see sort of the master and the apprentice teaming up although you could now say honestly that rachel has almost become the master because i think she's a better player at this point than clark has has been in her career although clark is still a really strong player i mean christian even went as far in the clothing to say that rachel is the best player since dan merle and though that might be a bit of an exaggeration at this point i see where he's coming from just because I mean, both of them have no weaknesses in their game. I mean, even some of the best players, even Sam Levine has, you know, he's not very good at animated. Um, But, I mean, (laughs) Rachel and Dan, like, is the two people I think of when I think who are the most well-rounded players in the Schmodown. Um, So, yeah, I think it could could definitely be the the year of the crusher. Um, But, yeah, it was... Although the match was a bit of a letdown, not as exciting as I was hope. Some great stuff with the storylines, and I'm really looking forward to the uh, the team match on Tuesday between top that and top ten to see who is going to play the Patriots on Championship Week, which apparently is a new thing that's happening um, sometime in the future. And the Patriots are not the New England Patriots; they are a faction. They are a team, <laughs> not a faction. They are a team in uh, the Schmodown universe. Yes, the Patriots, uh, the Schmodown Patriots are actually undefeated, whereas the uh, the New England Patriots. They just got handed an L, so... Uh, yeah, bad, so, time, uh, bad time an L for them. 
But uh, <laughs> I think we're going to try to make this a recurring segment on our show. I know you love the showdown, uh, sorry, the showdown, and I'm already a little bit addicted to it. I, I was bringing up the manager bowl in the Star Wars uh, matchup because I did go back and watch them yeah, last night. You were so watching them? I did. I went, I went back and watched them. I watched Great. the Iron uh, Man match. Those, and the... Were, those were two really uh, entertaining. I mean, the Star Wars match was incredible. Like the. the... Yeah. The, the, the end of it was of just, it. yeah, crazy. Um, Absolutely crazy. And then the, the manager bowl, too, was, it was, funny. was just really entertaining. Yeah. Um, you know, Dagnino was hilarious. Isn't it? Dag, yeah, Dagnino is, you know, he as as evil as he is, like, the Schmodown would not be the same without him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, great, great uh, war between him and Emma Fife that I think is going to be a big storyline in, in this season coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, I'm into it already. So we're going to keep this going. Great. Um, it's def- I, th- I think that the Schmodown, as someone who is new to it, it's definitely worth giving it a watch if you're a movie nerd at all or if you like the idea of a movie trivia league. Uh, the personalities, to me, are an added bonus. And I'll yeah. include a link in the, in the description, the show notes for this, for this episode for a, a link to the Schmodown uh, season, season premiere for season five. Yeah, and they, uh, they just started a Patreon. Um, yep, that is true, they did. So yep. go support that because there's a lot of like cool things that you can get at the different tiers. I think there's 15 tiers. Um, yeah, I threw it a few bucks. I, I think I sponsored it at the $3 level. That's exactly, that's where I am too. Um, yep. So, so yeah, go, go support it because they're trying to do like, they're trying to make it bigger than ever. I mean, Christian yeah. said that like, he his goal for this year is to have like, four matches a week, two matches in each video, like an undercard and then a main event match, which would be, would be awesome. Yeah, and uh, another important thing to note, just, I mean, obviously most of our, I mean, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the Schmodown, but uh, the difference is this year is that Collider is not bearing the cost of the show anymore, and, and yeah. Christian Harloff and Mark Ellis, yeah, Mark Ellis are bearing Mark the, Ellis, yeah. Yeah, Mark Ellis are bearing the costs of the show, and so that's why they've created this Patreon, both to pay for what, they could, what they've already been doing in terms of where it's been in the past, and also to try and build it up to what you were describing as a, a four four matches a week with an undercard and a main event. Yeah, it's already come so far too. I mean, the graphics like shout out to Brian Ward who does the graphics for the Schmodown. Like, it's it's crazy to see how far it's come from those original Schmoes episodes where they're just literally sitting on a couch answering questions to you know that the graphics now look so like clean and nice. Um, and like you know, it, it looks legit now. Like it really does. Yeah, I don't have that context, but you do. So you're someone who could yeah. really appreciate that. All right, I think we're gonna take one final brief break and be back with our discussion topic of the week and a few news tidbits. I know we're running a little bit long, so a little self awareness there, but we will wrap things up in our last part, which will be shorter than the other ones. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Some Like It, Scott, in our final segment of today's episode, where we're going to start with our discussion topic of the week. Scott, what are we going to be talking about today? So, our topic in honor of the uh, this epic Super Bowl that just happened, um, it's a very simple one. What uh, is our favorite sports movie of all time? And as a huge sports fan, and you're a big sports fan as well, um, you know this is a topic that is, that is close to my heart, so I'm interested to see what you uh, chose. Yeah, it was one that I, I spent a little bit of time thinking about. There are so many sports movies, or at least tan, like sports tangential movies out there, that it, it took me a while to think about it a little bit. And I think if this conversation were about 
best sports movies, my answer would be very different. Uh, I think in that category for me, you'll have movies like Raging Bull, an, you know, an absolute classic, Million yeah. Dollar Baby, Moneyball, Creed even, I think are up there in the best in the best discussion. Uh, th- three of those being boxing movies. There are a lot of boxing yeah. films. Um, but for me, I it's... I like it's, boxing movies. Yeah, I, I mean, me too. I, I, find, I mean, I don't watch that much boxing or mixed martial arts or, any, or mm-hmm. anything like that, but... I'm often fascinated by the movies. I think they create they they create very compelling stories. Uh, yeah. But for me, my favorite is a classic comedy. I wouldn't put it in the best category whatsoever. But I just really love Caddyshack. I'm a, hard to beat. Hard to beat. It's such a classic. I I mean I don't want. I mean we could do a whole episode probably on on Caddyshack and sports <laughs> movies. And, no. <laughs> yeah, there are there are a lot of. Terribly inappropriate lines. Probably should not have seen this movie as, as early as I did in my life, given some of the content. Uh, yeah. It's always interesting to revisit it now that I'm significantly older than whatever age I was when I first saw it. But it's so funny. Bill Murray's performance is iconic, and some and of Rodney the Dangerfield. Yeah, yeah, and I was gonna say, and yeah, his and Rodney Dangerfield's performance are just absolutely hard to beat in terms of comedic. Movies were just funnier back then, I feel like. Maybe that's just me, but... You know, maybe, maybe this podcast will open your eyes to funny movies when we... <laughs> branch, we'll branch out a little bit from the from the dramas that we normally cover here yeah. when we get out of the awards season. But, uh, no, you're right. Like, I... It also might have something to do with the time of my life when I was introduced to this, to these, like, this film and these kinds of films. Yeah. Um, Caddyshack just really struck a chord with me, and it's, and it's stuck with me ever since. I, I try to revisit on a, re, on a somewhat regular basis, although I've lapsed a little bit um, recently, and it's just such a funny movie. I don't have too many complaints about it, but I don't know if you have anything to add. I don't want to take too much time to talk about it, because I know we have run long in this episode, and I don't, I don't know how much to, I'd have to say in a short period of time about it, because it is pretty cool. I mean, yeah, it's a classic, you know, there's, when you, when you have comedies like that, there's really only so much you can say, and that's just, is it funny or not, and it's obviously really funny, and has stood the test of time, I mean, people still watch and quote this movie to this day, um, And so, Chevy Chase yeah, is also in this film, it's definitely cemented itself as a classic. Yeah, and I forgot to, I should, we should mention that Chevy Chase is also in this film. Yes, of a very, course. Very good Always role. Great. Yep. Clark Griswold himself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly... If I if I passed him on the street, just instinctively, I might call him Clark instead of Chevy. Yeah. So, you yeah. serious, Clark? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's good. That's good. Way to weave that one in. That was a good one. <laughs> um, so my choice um, is um, a movie which is not a comedy, um, but to me, this honestly, from the moment I saw it, I thought this is probably the best sports movie or my favorite sports movie that I've that I've ever seen, and you know. You say you want to try and go an episode without dropping name drop or without mentioning a uh, superhero movie. I'd like to go an episode um, without name dropping Aaron Sorkin. However, this will not be that episode um, because I, I knew this my was choi- it. Yep. Yeah, my choice is Moneyball, yep. um, directed by Bennett Miller, written by Sorkin and Steve Zalian. Um, to me, this movie just gets it. Like as far as what is so like great and also heartbreaking about being a sports fan and i'm thinking about the opening scene which i think probably captures that better than any movie i've ever seen um and that is when billy bean played by brad pitt is sitting in the ace empty stadium and he has this he's just sitting in the stadium and he has his radio and he's listening to the um playoff game the A's are basically they're playing in new york and they're down to their last three outs against the yankees and last three outs of their season and 
um, he's sitting there at the radio and he keeps turning it on and off because he just can't bear to listen, but also he has to listen. Um, and so I think it's just such a beautiful scene that captures like the agony and ecstasy of being a sports fan all in one, um, in one scene. But then I think, you know, there's this really fascinating story about the you know, sort of the business world of sports um, and the way that Billy Bean was able to build a team out of sort of nothing. Uh, although I will say that the movie takes a few liberties. Um, they, they want you, they kind of want you to believe that, um, that really Billy, that this team became what it was because of the, you know, ragtag lineup that Billy Bean pieced together. But what they failed to mention in the movie, um, and was actually a very integral part to the A's having the success of the 2002 season was that the top three pitchers in their rotation were, Barry Zito, Mark Mulder, and Tim Hudson. I don't think they made any mention of that really in the movie. Um, but you have to think, well, you have to know that uh, that played a, a huge role in the A success too. But of course, that wouldn't make for as compelling of a story. Um, but I think that what it is, you know, it has it has the the great story about the business world. It gets that about being a fan of sports so well. Obviously, it has great dialogue um, by Sorkin. Uh, but also it does have the, you know, the sort of emotional storytelling, uh, emotional sports cliche. I don't want to say cliche because, you know, that makes it sound negative. But it, ha- it has that, you know, sort of familiar emotional story, sports storytelling element to it, too, with especially involving Chris Pratt's character, Scott Hatterberg, um, who, you know, starts out as a catcher, becomes a first baseman and then ends up, um, you know, he, kind of was a player that everyone passed on, and then he ends up hitting the home run that gives the A's their record-breaking streak until my Cleveland Indians broke it this year. Um, but... Uh, hype. What'd you say? I said hype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, But, I, yeah, this is just a... This is a great movie. It really just gets what is so great about... Um, about sports, why people love them so much, and to do it in the world of my favorite sport, baseball... Um, only makes it even sweeter. So yeah, Moneyball. If you haven't seen it, instant classic. Yeah, like I said, I think I think I I could firmly put that movie in the cat in the best sports movie yeah. discussion for me, uh, with along with a few others. I don't know if it'd come out on top, but it's definitely in there, and it's yeah. uh, it's impossible to argue. I think with that pick as a as a favorite favorite sports film. Yeah. All right. So before we wrap, wrap things up, I do have a few news stories. Uh, we don't necessarily have to talk about them. Uh, some of them I think we might, but. I do want to just run through them really quickly. Some of them have come across my radar in the past couple of weeks, and some of them came across my radar literally in the last few hours as I watched the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, so Netflix is making a splash in the, we'll say the the higher quality TV and and film market. They are they so they just dropped Altered Carbon this past Friday, which is supposed to be these. Well, okay, I don't know if it's supposed to be, but it has been kind of almost labeled the cyberpunk game of thrones i haven't i know i've looked at its ratings it is not touching game of thrones ratings uh through the critics at least but i do want to watch it soon um i want to i'm as is a constant theme as as our listeners might be unearthing is that my tv show watching is not as not as a temporally relevant as my film watching (laughs) um so i i do kind of want to catch up if possible and try to stay more temporally relevant with my with my TV watching as well. So I think I may try to dip into Altered Carbon and check it out for myself. And also just announced tonight, um, and also available to watch on Netflix tonight, is the third Cloverfield film, uh, Cloverfield Paradox, which, I mean, I'm kind of in the, on Twitter I follow a bunch of nerdy 
uh, pop culture people, and mm-hmm. people were freaking out about this on, yeah, no, on my Twitter feed. Yeah, it's never a series that I've really gotten involved in, but it seems like it's a big deal. I think it has a real, I mean, I know the first film, which is the only one that I've seen, has a real cult following. I didn't see 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is the yeah, second one. Yeah, I didn't one. either. Uh, but I mean, my my that that region of my Twitter feed was on fire in yeah. the middle of the Super Bowl for that. So take that for what it's worth. But you can watch that tonight on Netflix. Um, which we'll see how the reviews go in for that because I know that's a total surprise. I don't think any critics ever reviewed it because they didn't even know it was coming out, or they yeah. even the, even the, I don't even think the title of it was released yeah. before now. So that's pretty cool. In a kind of a second news story, t- I I texted about you about this when I saw it earlier this week. But Tom Hanks is going to be playing Mr. Rogers in the in his biopic, in, Mr., in, in a, the Mr. Rogers biopic that's coming out. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Just thought I'd mention it because it came across my radar. It's a very Tom Hanks character. We mentioned it earlier. Yeah, in the I, was, film. I was about to say, we talked about Tom Hanks playing it safe earlier. Um, I don't, I'm not sure you can get much safer than this. I mean, this is the the Tom Hanksiest of all Tom Hanks roles, honestly. Like, I can't imagine anyone else playing Mr. Rogers. But that being said, I'm sure he'll do a fantastic job. Yeah, I don't have anything more to add except that as well. It just came across my radar. I thought it worth mentioning. Also, this one was on my radar before the Super Bowl, but also is relevant because of a trailer that came across in the Super Bowl with the Mission Impossible Fallout film was recently officially announced for this summer. Yeah, and... I uh, was actually just watching the Graham Norton show the other night um, where, they, where they actually had the cast of this movie. Um, it's a good Tom cast. Cruise. Henry Cavill. And yeah, yeah. And Angela uh, and Bassett. Peg and Rebecca Ferguson as well. Um and yeah, I'm excited because I mean this is one of the best action franchises of all time to me. Um, and Tom Cruise was hyping up like he said that there's first of all there's one stunt that like he's been working on for like years involving a helicopter. And have you seen? Did you watch the trailer that was released during the Super Bowl? Yes, I did. Yeah, so I mean I think that I think I know which one he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, well he wouldn't give it away totally what happens. But then there's another thing. One he said that or no. What he said was, this is the most uh, uh, practical action movie of all time, uh, which is to say that, like, there's almost no CGI. Like, all of the action is pretty much real. Interesting. I'm intrigued yeah. I'm intrigued to see what that looks like on screen. And we won't have to wait too long. It's coming out in July, I believe. I don't, I don't have the exact date at my fingertips, but I think it's maybe mid-late July. Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Cool, yeah. Also, trailers debuting and worth noting in the Super Bowl as there was. So this wasn't a trailer. We went back and forth about this, but the the solo a Star Wars story teaser, yes. I think I think is what officially you'd call it. The full trailer is being released tomorrow, and I, you know, I was thinking actually about this before the Super Bowl about uh, Rogue One and with Solo coming out this year. I was like, you know, I liked the Last Jedi. We haven't talked about it on this podcast, and I, and I don't know. We won't we won't review it on this podcast, but maybe it'll come up at some point. Um, but it was a divisive movie and I was like, Oh, what is solo going to be like? It's not Harrison Ford. And this teaser, man, it got me going and I'm, I'm pumped about watching this trailer tomorrow. Oh, me too. It was a great teaser. Yeah. The Ron Howard cinematography, well, it wasn't Ron Howard doing the cinematography, but his, his direction on the film immediately apparent. And I'm pretty pumped about, uh, about what this film is going to look like. And it's, it's actually not going to be releasing in the December timeframe that we've been used to for the past few years. It's coming out in May. So, yep. very soon. And then finally, I don't think we'll have much to say about this one, but there was also a Westworld teaser for Season 2 that dropped that said it's gonna yes. be, there's going to be Season uh, 2 coming out soon. So, maybe that's something we'll bring up in a uh, what we've been watching segment sometime later down the road. Perhaps. perhaps. All right, last bit of news. Um, this one is kind of 
closer to what I had a couple weeks ago with the Jumanji one. But the I, a, a story that came across my newsfeed this week was that Black Panther ticket pre-sales. So they've actually outpaced all other MCU films before. I do want to clarify that this does not mean that it's going to open stronger than other MCU films. It just specifically pre-sale tickets. So not the yeah. opening, not the actual number of tickets that are going to be purchased on opening weekend, obviously. Um, right. I think it's projected to hit around $130 million on opening weekend. And I think Avengers did something like $200 million. So that, mm-hmm. that puts things in perspective. Um, well, it's getting good buzz, too. Like a bunch of the yep. collider people that I follow on Twitter from the Schmodown. I mean, Christian Harloff and yep. uh, I think John Roca tweeted about it, maybe. Um, we're all very complimentary of because they, they saw screenings of it. Yeah, the, the official um, so first screening was... Yeah, the first screening of it for critics was last Monday. And I've... I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a, it's embargoed, so they can't release their reviews yet. Yeah. But uh, all positive words, which is really exciting, because I think that this not only am am I, I mean, you know, and I think people, our listeners will know by now, based on my defense of Batman versus Superman last week, that I am a super superhero film fan, a comic a comic book film fan, and I'm glad to see a movie. I'm I'm always glad to see these films do well, both in terms of audience support, which at the end of the day is the most important thing. And critical acclaim as well, and I think that the cultural, uh, the cultural aspect of this film being about uh, African slash African American, however you want to kind of interpret that uh, culture, is a really is one that is that is long overdue. Both, I mean, I mean, there have been some films about it in the wider uh, Hollywood, I guess, world, but in superhero films, it's not one that's been prevalent and. It is one that seems ripe for the taking, and I and it really seems like Black Panther could do it. And I hope I hope it's as good as the hype is building up around it. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm looking forward to talking about it, Definitely. and uh, we'll see what it has in store. It'll be interesting to see how it actually ends up doing in a, on its opening weekend, etc. But the pre-sales ticket outpacing all others was one that I thought was really interesting and worth bringing up. All right, so I think that just about does it for episode two of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts you would like to leave us with today? I know you you were texting or tweeting earlier this week about the Florida Project on iTunes or releasing yes. on iTunes. Thank you for mentioning that. I was almost um, was was not going to mention it, but mm-hmm. yeah, the Florida Project is now out on um, digital platforms. Um, you know, like I've said, it's my, it was my best movie of 2017, so if you haven't checked it out, please do. And a cool thing that Sean Baker um, is doing, too, is that all the proceeds from the digital purchases of the Florida Project are going towards underprivileged families in the Kissimmee, Florida area, which is where the film is based and who the film is based on. Um, so, yeah, you're not just seeing a great movie when you buy it, but you're also uh, supporting uh, a community that definitely needs our help. Um, so, yeah, definitely go check out that uh, that wonderful movie. Yeah, That's I would, my thoughts. It's been on my to-watch list, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get to it anytime soon, but when you mentioned yeah. that the proceeds were going of the digital sales, I, I went out and, and bought it myself because I think that's a, oh, cool. it's, a, it's a worthy cause. So. Yeah. Yeah, and the only other thing I noticed, speaking of digital platforms, um, I saw that Wind River is the 99-cent rental on iTunes this week. It's not a movie that's yet come up on our podcast, but now it has. I know yeah, that we were both... Yeah, it out. It's a good one. Yeah, it's, it's a very good thriller. It has its flaws, um, ones that are not worth mentioning right now, but it's definitely worth 99 cents, so check it out if you're looking for a good film, a, a nice thrill ride, quite literally, I think, um, yeah. for 
for your weekend plans. So yeah, 99 Cent Rental on iTunes. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at Scarvey Dent. I'm trying to tweet a little bit more about movies or at the very least combine sports and movies together. Hey, which um, you did very well so, during the Super Bowl this And I'll evening. get some, uh, some Schmodown tweets off too. So if, if any if any Schmodown fans are listening, um, you can follow me at Scarvey Dent. Maybe I'll, I'll fill in some updates on my fantasy team. I'm pretty excited because they just announced that Mark Ellis is going to play against Jeff Snyder in a match, and I have Mark Ellis on my team. So that could be a big chance for me right there. But yeah, follow me at Scarvey Dent. Yeah, cool. And I, I got to give you credit for getting a Silver Lines playbook reference in there for the Super Bowl tonight. Yeah. So that was that was a nice one. Uh, all right. seemed right. Yeah, it, yeah. And you know what? It came through. He didn't drop the remotes. So. I, I guess he didn't move them, yeah. yeah. All right. And awesome. I I can be found. I'm Scott Shelton. I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. More importantly, however, as we mentioned at the start of the show, uh, you can follow this podcast now on Twitter uh, at, at Media Plug Pods, as well as over on Facebook. Just look up some like it, Scott, or Media Plug Pods over there, and you'll find it. I'll include all the relevant links in the description, and we also want to remind you about our Patreon page. We'd love it if you checked it out and even supported us over there so that we can at least cover the costs of making this show. If you do, however, choose not to support us on Patreon, that's totally okay. Uh, you can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed and shared, all that jazz. So that way we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I think I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in a few weeks. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking about, uh, we'll be return to our two-movie format, and we'll be talking about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, as well as Phantom Thread. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. Bye, everybody.